This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. We are uh, bringing it to you again. Three hours of fun, of interesting information, helping you see the world, hopefully a little more positively. Also, just trying to give you the tools to understand what is going on in your world. Today, we will be uh, doing a a little uh, discussion about Russia. Do you feel like you have a clue what's really going on when people keep talking about the Ukraine and Vlad? (laughs) Vlad. Do you really understand uh, how they feel about us? Apparently, 57, 58 percent of people in Russia see the United States as their number one threat, which is interesting to me because I don't feel that threatening, quite honestly. And so we'll be talking about that uh, a little bit later in this hour. Uh, In the second hour, we're going to get into uh, unproductive busyness. Why are we all so prone to just keep moving and stay busy, even if the busyness actually is less effective. We'll be talking about a Harvard Business Review study on that. And in the third hour, putting the happiness back in the young, uh, kind of the millennials. They've got a really interesting little uh, paradigm going on that might be impacting them. So we'll be getting to that as well. Incredibly good news, by the way. Great news. Uh, Went to the doctor yesterday, my podiatrist. Apparently, podiatrists, a lot of older people have foot problems because I sat in the waiting room with a bunch of older people. I'm not saying anything about older, but I'm like, wow, this is where I am now. I'm a grandfather to be, and I'm sitting in a waiting room that smells like mentholatum. What, What did it feel like being surrounded by your peers? Honestly, felt great because I knew I'm at the top of my game. I could take anyone in that waiting room. I could <laughs> You're take them sizing all. up everyone else in there. No, we're actually really good friends. In fact, we're we're playing bridge this Friday. <laughs> then pinochle. It's really a cool thing. But I go. I went in and I my foot is fixed. Two and a half years of plantar fasciitis fixed. It's fixed. Yeah, he taped my foot. That's what I've been doing wrong. You haven't been taping your foot. No. You know how athletes before the big game, they, you always see them and they're getting taped up? Got to get taped. I've never been taped. I need to be taped yeah. every morning. So I need one of the producers. Terry, you need to sort Whoa. this out. Okay. I need one of the producers to tape my foot every day. I've been looking for things for Ben to do. Okay. He's been doing <laughs> spreadsheets for us and you kind of documenting some of the things. We can tape your foot. This doctor is a, ge- a genius with tape. He's a taping genius. And he just taped my foot and then he says, try this. Let's go for this for one week. And if this works, then we're going to get you some orthotics, which are inserts for my shoes. Yes. Which I've known I should get forever. Right. And while you're there, you can get maybe a lift. I can get a lift. Get a couple inches. and <laughs> Get... You know, build your self esteem a little more. Get a little lift. <laughs> my my right shoe needs about a you know you're half an inch higher than my left. You're shoe. lopsided Until a bit there. Until everyone notices that you're wearing platforms, and then yeah, that's kind of weird. But taping, uh, put that on the put that on the memo for the next meeting. Gotcha. Because I we'll want to be taped that. every morning. Would you like a volunteer or would you like an assignment made? 
I think I think you ought to pass it around to everyone so everyone gets a shot at it. Oh, really? Rotate it. Uh-huh. That's interesting. There's some jobs that should everybody James, needs. To should try. James be involved in the I rotation? I want Jimmy Dean to be the first one. Okay. Jimmy Dean, you're up first. He does have a delicate touch. Yes, he does. <laughs> Very warm hands, by the way. So uh, Jimmy Dean will be working on that tomorrow. Hey, David Letterman, how cool is that? He did. He. I really. I grew up watching him. I grew up watching Carson. I. He's one of the reasons I wanted to do radio. Is because it's just he's just funny but dry. But you know, some people loved him and hated him, and he's just a good guy. And he he went out with a bang. Here's your favorite clip from last night's farewell monologue. Let's hear it. Or one of them. That was good. That was great. Seems shorter than I remember it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Late Show. I want to tell you one thing. Uh, I'll be honest with you. It's beginning to look like I'm not going to get the Tonight Show. I don't think so. <laughs> so there was that. I love he that. mentioned the Tonight. You know, Tonight Show. He talked about uh, what when they walked first walked into the Ed Sullivan Theater. Yep. And how it was just a dump. He said the the rats were kind of stooped over because they were overworked <laughs> with how how bad the how it was. He he got so. he was disrespected. He thought by Johnny Carson because he didn't get the Tonight Show. Yeah. But again, and that he always kind of took. He had that edge, and he was very self deprecating. He talked about his heart issues. Do you remember that? I mean, there's so much history. Yeah. And there's another. You got another clip. Another clip. Well, here's some uh, statistics. Uh, Paul and I have uh, been doing this show 33 years, and uh, that's 6,028 shows. It's a lot of shows. Uh, <clears throat> Earlier today, we got a call from Stephen Hawking, and he, bless his heart, had done the math because he's a, a genius and stuff, and 6,028 shows, and he ran the numbers, and he said it works out to about eight minutes of laughter. 6,028 shows. Can you imagine that? No. Like, yeah. 6,000 shows. What have you done 6,000 times? I don't want to hear about it. It's amazing. I have no idea. I've probably woken up. Mm. How, many, how many years is that? 33 years. So I'm not that, that far past 6,000 y- days old. I know. Amazing. Now, you're well past it, so it's fine. Pardon? Huh? Come again? So, yeah. I, my foot is. And every, every late night host went ahead and did a tribute that's cool they did the top 10 was basically a bunch of jimmy kimmel stars. jimmy kimmel the other night did one uh, he showed all, all these photographs of he had a car with the license plate when his first car said late night on the license plate did it really a birthday cake he, he had like a birthday party it was kind of a, a david letterman type thing he was just his hero he loved watching that that's why he got into this business he and, and and he uh, just really these tributes that you're like, really, these people actually watched him. But if you think about it, comedians, you're yeah. going to watch other comedians. And as you're growing up as a kid, those are, you know, it was Johnny Carson and then David Letterman. And that was really who was on TV at the time. And they, they say a lot of people, maybe more than probably any other late night host, were a lot of comedians were deeply affected by Letterman, maybe more affected than most because – yeah. Of his style. Well, he was more, felt like probably one of them where Carson kind of was uh, yeah. accused of being aloof. Well, and also he was uh, he was on late night for so long that he had, he could kind of be more, 
of his com- his oh of more of his real comedy yeah. rather than where Carson was yeah. trying to. It's amazing. I mean, I just I, I don't know whether you like him or not, man. Thirty three years in that industry, and yeah. especially. You know, because he also offended. For years, he was a pretty mean guy. A lot of people yeah. wouldn't go back on his show, and he'd always joke about how they won't come back on his show. I mean, he made fun of Oprah for years before, and now she's in his final top ten list and stuff. But he made fun of her, like, teasing because she'd never come on the show. So, huge deal. Congrats to him. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can be on 33 years. 6,028 shows. 6,000. It's a lot. It's a lot. That would if, For us, it would equal about two minutes of humor. If we get that. <laughs> Other things that happened yesterday. Yes. Rand Paul lasted 10 and a half hours as he did a quasi-filibuster yeah. of the Patriot Act. Which he, he doesn't have the votes to ever get passed, so he's just making a statement. He's trying to hold out, don't you think? Is he running for president? It seems like he might be running for president. Is that president. what that was? I, it might feel? be. Because it says here that he carefully timed his protest for Wednesday when it would fill a lull in uh-huh. proceedings and not delay any important votes on the NSA program or the trade bill. So he's not making anyone no, mad. He's not ticking anybody off. He's making a point. And he's going to, I bet he'll run out the clock to Memorial Day. So that way, because everyone wants to leave town, and then they're going to be gone all next week. Yeah. So this, then he can go back during the memorial hiatus and look like a hero again. You know. So he, he started at one eighteen p.m. Eastern, made it to eleven forty eight p.m. Eastern. Oh, how horrible! Just standing there. It's like a telethon. Yeah. It without gets, any money being made, it gets ridiculous. Well, he did. He did uh, step away as other senators stepped in to uh, fill his. Oh, he just found, yeah, he found a few helpers so he could some use the restroom. That's right. But then he came back and kept yeah. going for 10 hours. So that happened. It was probably on C-SPAN. Mm-hmm. If, if you missed oh, it. Oh, for sure. <laughs> you they had play-by-play on C-SPAN. There's probably a video somewhere. ISIS fighters entered the ancient city of Syria. No. Uh, Syrian city of Palmyra. Palmyra. Excuse me. On Wednesday, putting 2,000-year-old ruins at risk. That's a big deal. That's the second city in a week. Yep. They took Ramadi over the weekend. And this one's the one that's got all these uh, ruins. And, you know, ISIS is kind of known for ruining ruins. They're yes. ruin ruiners. Those buildings are not representing us, so we'll blow them up. Again, it seems like we're losing this war. Maybe not. If you listen to the Defense Department, they try to put a happy spin on it. Eh, we didn't want Palmyra. We're working I think on they it. They call it Palmyra. Palmyra. They, didn't want they didn't want that one. Uh, also, uh, some reports have come out that over, on Sunday in uh, Ramadi, uh, ISIS lit up 30 car bombs. Oh, boy. 10 of which were as big or bigger than the Oklahoma City bombing. Holy cow. That brought down buildings. They're just causing mm. chaos and just destroying things. So that's uh, – it almost feels like you wonder if they can – they feel like they're going to hold on to these areas or if they even care. Because yeah. you take them over, blow them up, and if we lose them, eh, whatever, they're going to get rubble back. So – Amazing. It doesn't, I don't know. California Governor Jerry Brown declared a state of emergency for Santa Barbara County on Wednesday following a oh, massive oil tragic. spill. Officials say, they originally said it was 20,000 gallons. Didn't now go it's 105,000 gallons. <sighs> the oil stretches nine miles in total along the Southern California coast. The spill began when a two foot pipeline burst and leaked crude petroleum into a culvert that ran into the ocean for several hours before it was shut off. It's still unknown exactly how much was spilt. But an estimated 20 barrels of oil were recovered from the Pacific Ocean. Another 100 barrels were retrieved at the spill site, so Mm. back up on land, according to Santa Barbara. So, yeah, there's animals. There's people trying to go out and help the animals. They're telling them, don't do that. Just tell us. We'll go out there with our equipment and be able to help them. But it's a mess. Uh, It's it's tragic. Because, again, Santa Barbara, I've been there a ton, and they – 
that is like their number one resource is that ocean, that space. And they've had they had a disaster years ago. Right. So it's already kind of in the minds of the people up there. And oh, it's back, folks. It's back. So um, again, it's just news. News can just be pretty negative. But then you come listen to the show and we'll give you some ideas, some tools. We've got a great guest coming up, Dr. Jeff Hardy. He's a professor here at Brigham Young University. We wanted to bring somebody in that had a clue about Russia. They seem like such a strange, um, I don't know, I guess, world player. We, we don't know if we can trust them. They, they're popping up in submarines all over the place. You hear about a Ukraine airplane crash. Russia says they're not involved in a war with Ukraine or for Ukraine, and yet they are. What's going on with all of this? We're going to be talking to Dr. Jeff Hardy about Russia, trying to understand what is the deal with Russia, and uh, are they friend or foe? We'll find out when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Downs Show. I love this song. Hunt for Red October. Maybe that's not the best theme. We have to first figure out what's going on with Russia before we turn it into a Hunt for Red October theme. Hey, uh, on the show today, we're talking with Dr. Jeff Hardy, and he is an assistant professor of Russian and Eastern European history here at Brigham Young University. We wanted to pick his brain. He is an expert on Russia and it's such an interesting uh, situation. First of all, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be here. It's great to have somebody that has a clue because, you know, we – I was raised uh, thinking, you know, the USSR, Soviet Union, spawn of darkness, the Death Star. And then we have this Mr. Uh, President Reagan, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Then the next thing I know when I'm a 21-year-old, boom. Changed. Yeah. Now absolutely. they're our friend, they're our ally. But now here, 25 years later, uh, some of the latest uh, studies show that uh, the relationships between the United States and the Russian government is the worst they've been in 25 years. In fact, in a recent article on Russia and America, Russians, 59% of Russians see the United States as a threat. That's up from 47% in 2007. Thirty-one percent of those same people surveyed believe that the U.S. Uh, may be preparing for a possible invasion or occupation of Russia. Um, and yet, and even in the United States, 18 percent of people in the United States believe that Russia is our greatest enemy. So, oh, Jeff, teach us. Um, just teach us where, what is going on with Russia right now and, and where, where have they come from and, and are they – can they just not get rid of the old Soviet Union days? Tell us, fill us in. What's going on? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, uh, they were left with a an economy uh, that was basically a complete basket case. Uh, it was, the, the entire country was a rust belt, essentially. Uh, ref, economic reforms in the late Soviet period had not been successful. 
And this overnight transition to capitalism did not go smoothly. And we saw in the 1990s that Russia and most of the other post-Soviet republics uh, weathered a series of very serious economic crises uh, where the population became destitute, a large percentage of the population. Simultaneously, Russia saw its influence globally uh, recede yeah. substantially. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Soviet Union, of course, one of the great two superpowers of the world since World War II, uh, now thrust into a position that was ambiguous at best and uh, really became you know, not quite a bit player on the world scene. Uh, but it found itself... Uh, in the shadow of American global dominance. We're being broken into parts, really, right? That's certainly a big part of it, yeah. Yeah, and so and so it was – what did it turn into being? 13 states? What was it? 15. 13, 15, 15 republics. Republics. So it, this, this powerful union of one that was communist controlled, I guess, and, and, and then broken into then bits, 15, right. but without really any economy. I mean it was – they were all struggling. Yeah, certainly. By the end of the, the 1990s, when President Putin took power, uh, democratically, I might add, uh, yeah, Russia was in a very difficult place. Yeah. Uh, I, I was in Russia in the late 1990s, and it was, it was tragic. Uh, health indicators were, had completely collapsed. The average life expectancy for men at that time was in the mid-50s, oh, wow. if you can believe that. What was it in the United States, comparatively? Do you know? Yeah, mid-70s. Was it really? Yeah, so a, a huge uh, difference, and, and that had been a complete collapse from the Soviet times when the, the Soviet mortality was in, in the 70s. Uh, we saw you know, homelessness, uh, mm. close to star- starvation, uh, c- currency collapse, inflation. And, and so everything that we see now, we have to bear the 1990s in mind. Right. Uh, this point in time when democracy at its fullest was attempted and didn't produce the greatest outcomes uh, in terms of Yeltsin in particular. And capitalism was tried uh, and is still being practiced over there uh, to a great extent. Uh, but capitalism led to economic collapse. It, mm-hmm. it led to – uh, shrinkage of GDP, if I remember my numbers correctly, of around 40 percent. So all things kind of Western failed Russia, failed the, these these Russian republics. At least this is the narrative that the Russians construct yeah. about the 1990s. So uh, the West has that, – that in a way, so the West did fail them. Capitalism, democracy, even – I mean they keep parts of every – all of it, but they kind of do it right. their way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and this is why we continue to see nostalgia for the Soviet Union that in America we have a hard time understanding. Yeah, I mean, why you, would they make right. nostalgic for this repressive system? Uh, and yet this repressive system in the 1960s, 70s, and the early 1980s uh, was a system that had one of the greatest educational and scientific establishments in the world. It provided a good standard of living, if not great, for most of its citizens as long as you kind of – you know, kept your head down a little bit. <laughs> Stay busy. Uh, the the economy was very functional. Yeah. It wasn't 
great, but it was functional. Uh, international prestige. You know, they, they sent the man uh, to outer space. You yeah, right. And all this, uh, you know, winning chess championships, winning the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, and then the 1990s is this complete uh, collapse on all layers of society. And, and so the Putin era that we continue to, to now witness today uh, is largely a reaction to the 1990s. Uh, and it's part of this yearning to be something great as they were before. Yeah. It's and it seems like he's he's kind of in a way idyllic I guess because he's it seems like a uh, Putin that is a mix of both of these worlds. He wants kind of the capitalistic power. I mean, we've heard stories about how he's one of the richest men in the world if you actually could know. Sure, yeah. And um but then also he he still seemingly has a supposed democracy where they're voting for people and yet political you know foes uh, are dying in a, alleged assassination attempts and things so it's a weird he it's a weird space and then the rest of us look at vladimir putin like why doesn't he have a shirt on you know what i mean and i so i'm assuming that some of that is just for home he's just trying to play the strong man Absolutely. Uh, most of what Putin does is for his domestic constituents. Yeah. Uh, Russia does remain a democracy. Uh, we have seen uh, some degree of election manipulation and fraud over the past several years. That notwithstanding, uh, Putin has been overwhelmingly popular yeah. uh, in his country and given a free and fair election at any point over the past 15 years, he would not have lost yeah, those elections. Yeah, he's still going to win. Correct. And I guess that's that's a throwback, right? He's a KGB guy, yet yes. he also uh, – is the economy doing better now? Uh, the economy since 2000 – well, from 2000 until 2008 uh, did very well. Yeah. Uh, and we saw the emergence of a – a fairly large and to some degree wealthy middle class in Russia, which which was remarkable, something that we didn't see in the 1990s, a middle class that could buy cars and that could go on vacation to Europe and to the Middle East, uh, that had a discretionary income. Uh, the 2008 global economic crisis uh, hit Russia fairly hard. Yeah. Uh, but as a result of some fairly prudent, we must say, economic policies pursued by Putin up to that point, uh, Russia had money stocked away. They, they were ready, uh, as ready as you could be for this crisis, and they actually weathered it pretty Did they? well. Uh, more recently, we've seen the collapse of oil prices and oh, Western sanctions them, that has hurt them at a time when the rest of the global economy has been doing pretty good over the past couple of years. Hmm. Uh, and so we've got kind of – we've entered a different economic period in yeah. Russia's history where they seem to be diverging from the rest of the world, again, based on oil prices and sanctions. We're speaking with Dr. Jeff Hardy, assistant professor of Russian and Eastern European history. We're going to take a break, come back, continue this discussion. I want to find out about the Ukraine that uh, supposedly they're not trying to take over. <laughs> and, um, and, and Crimea, maybe just give us mm -hmm. some information. There's just so much going on with Russia. Trying to understand Russia, a little bit better here, uh, bringing in the experts from Brigham Young University. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back, friends. This is the Red Army Choir. 
sense of humor. They you totally have to appreciate do. that. <laughs> That's so great. Uh, Jeff Hardy's joining us. He's a, a professor here at Brigham Young University in Russian and Eastern European history. We're just picking his brain about Russia because, to me, they're so – it's such an interesting um, culture. Gorbachev, a few months ago, did you, do you remember he came back and talked about how you know, disappointed he was right. in how the United States has handled it? I know uh, also um, – uh, uh, Vladimir Putin was was frustrated because the celebration for the the Russian German uh, war, mm-hmm. World War Two, World War in World War Two, we didn't we didn't come celebrate as much as the nobody came. None of the allies came to celebrate all of the work that Russia did during World War Two. Yeah, or they sent lower level delegations yeah. for the seventieth anniversary, which which Putin wanted to make a big show of. Twenty like twenty one million or something Russians died in that war. Yeah. And so I mean, in a way, we're maybe we're not a good neighbor. <laughs> you know, we, I mean, <laughs> that could, case could be made. Absolutely, or a good friend, I guess. Talk to us about Ukraine. There was an airplane shot down in Ukraine mm-hmm. uh, because of a, a war going on that apparently Russia's not involved in, but <laughs> apparently seems to be. Explain the whole Ukraine, Crimea, Russian thing because we're all hearing that in the news. Yeah, very long history here. The the very earliest Russian state was in fact centered in Kiev, old Kiev and Rus, going all the way back to the 900s. Uh, and so Russia and Ukraine have been really intertwined in history. Uh, for several centuries, Ukraine was linked more with Poland politically. But then in the 1700s, we saw that Ukraine, uh, at least eastern Ukraine, was brought firmly within Russian control. Uh, Catherine the Great uh, annexed Crimea in the late 1700s, uh, and we saw much of the rest of what we now consider present-day Ukraine uh, come under Russian control at that point. It was part of the Russian Empire. In Soviet times, we saw for the first time the creation of a Ukrainian republic. This is not something that had ever existed before. I get in trouble sometimes with my Ukrainian friends for saying this, but it's it's basically true. Uh, because the Soviet Union had a very interesting nationality policy. Uh, that is, they were trying to build up the various small uh, national groups in the Soviet Union, the Belarusians, the Ukrainians, eventually the Lithuanians and Latvians, the Kazakhs and the Georgians. And so Ukraine enjoyed a fair amount of linguistic, cultural uh, development, even autonomy in Soviet times uh, that paved the way for Ukraine to be its own independent country in Mm -hmm. 1991. Now, Crimea is an interesting case. Crimea was always very Russian, uh, ethnically, linguistically. And it's just kind of like an appendage to the Ukraine, right? Right. So it's connected to Ukraine. It's it's a peninsula. It's it's barely just not connected to Russia Russia. on the eastern side. It's separated by a narrow strait, the Strait of Kerch. so it was always very Russian. The, the, the Russian Black Sea Fleet was there. Uh, and in Soviet times, the Russians, or the Soviets, I should say, did something very interesting. In 1954, uh, Khrushchev, this is right after Stalin's death, transferred Crimea from the Russian Republic, 
Soviet Socialist Republic to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Hmm. Now, in Soviet times, this didn't make all that much of a difference, right? Yeah. Because it's it's one country. Yeah, you're still together. But when the Soviet Union collapses in 1991, all of a sudden, this piece of Ukraine, which had always been part of Russia and very Russian in nature up until 1954, was now part of Ukraine. Now, Yeltsin didn't do much about this in the 1990s, uh, but we saw Russian nationalists uh, over the years began to talk about reclaiming Crimea, Mm -hmm. and President Putin apparently began to buy into this idea. Uh, And so when the Ukrainian crisis broke out, the recent uh, Maidan protests, uh, apparently he he saw this as his moment, uh, that we can reclaim this territory that that should, in his view, belong to Russia. And the Crimeans apparently wanted it? Well, you know, a thorny question. So yeah. I, I simplified things a bit. So Crimea was always very Russian, continued to be so uh, vis-a-vis Ukrainian. There's also a sizable population of Tatars, uh, the Crimean Tatars. This is uh, a remnant of the uh, the Mongols, if you can believe it, wow. from way back in the, the 12th, 1300s. Yeah. Uh, they had been repressed in Soviet times, exiled to Central Asia immediately after World War II, ostensibly for collaboration with Nazi Germany, hmm. uh, allowed the survivors allowed to return in the late 1980s. Uh, they certainly did not want to see a Russian takeover of Crimea, hmm. uh, fearing another round of, uh, of Russian repression against them. And we have seen uh, to some extent some okay. of that since the Russian yeah. takeover. Uh, Ukrainians in Crimea, uh, smaller in number, and they certainly didn't want to see a Russian takeover either. Interesting. Uh, the more interesting thing is that most Russians, arguably, up to the uh, the Maidan protest crisis, uh, were not all that interested in Russian annexation either. Was this is something that caught them a bit off guard, although nationalist sentiment was quickly mo- mobilized in the region. Yeah. How do you... It's so interesting because how it really you can't necessarily trust the information. So, um, but then you see, I, I would I was just assuming there's got to be some resources or some other valuable reason that Russia would want the Crimea and want. But it's really so. I guess it is. It's just it's more of a historic grab than it is. A resource grab. Yeah, it's definitely historical. Uh, The other important point is that the Black Sea Fleet, the Soviet Black Sea Fleet, uh, continued to be located in Crimea after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, And so Russia was renting this naval base from Ukraine. They were paying a very large sum of money. strategic, man. Exactly. So it's it's a strategic position. It's got Mm -hmm. this military base that Ukraine was threatening to take away, that is to not renew the lease, to take it back from Russia. Uh, Russia saw this as a threat. We might also say that Crimea in Soviet times and even before Soviet times during the Russian Empire was a place where the Russian elite, uh, and not just the elite, I mean kind of your common working class uh, and and young people as well in Soviet times would go to relax. This is their beach resorts. This is, you know, this is their Hawaii. It's a resort, yeah. So this is this so an A a vacation spot. It's our Hawaii. 
It, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's where you keep the fleet and you go have a nice retreat. Right. Um, Russia and China, there's a lot of talk now about the, they're strengthening some relationships. I mean, there's mm-hmm. obvious other issues that keep coming up. But it seems like they're kind of a natural fit. Russia has a lot of uh, oil. Correct. And uh, China has a lot of need for oil. What, where do you see that going? This is a relationship that has really developed under Putin. Uh, the Russian-China relationship was fraught with a lot of uh, tension, disagreement in Soviet times. As Americans, sometimes we saw, oh, the Soviets are communists, the Chinese are communists, they must be allies. Uh, in fact, from about 1960 onward, they were anything but allies. Yeah. They were kind of mortal enemies. There were border clashes and so forth. Uh, but Putin has taken great steps to mend these fences, to, to replay, repair the relationships. They've managed to uh, kind of uh, delimit the border in a couple of places uh, and we've got this new strategic economic and geopolitical partnership yeah. that has developed. This is a partnership that many observers, including myself, uh, see as favoring China much more than it does favor really? Russia. Uh, this is a play by Russia to draw China into some sort of kind of you know anti-Western block right. in international affairs. Uh, economically speaking, China is reaping most of the benefit of this relationship. Is it, is it just because Russia is that desperate? Or is it really because they really want to have the political power against the West? Yeah, they're really after geopolitical power. China takes a much longer term view of things. Yeah. Uh, and for them, economics makes much it's more to sense. They're, yeah. they're willing to let Putin and Russia kind of uh, be the fall guy Interesting. Uh, in international politics. Well, yeah, it's kind of smart politics, I guess. No, it is. Uh, the Chinese are very shrewd. It's, uh, it's a really interesting um, thing. There's another thing I've, we've got to ask you because she's running for president. Hillary Clinton, when yeah. she was secretary of state, went in and, and they were going to push the reset the button. The reset button, yes, of and, course. Um, and went, okay, so explain why that was such a fiasco. Because she, it was offensive. She, there was something about pushing the reset button that was mistranslated. Do you remember yeah, all of that? Yeah, it was mistranslated. The the button said the wrong thing. <laughs> but uh, it was an offense, like yeah. I mean, to some extent, I, it wasn't what? taken too much as an offense. Uh, but I mean, Hillary tried to do the same thing that President. Uh, George H. or George W. Bush did uh, early in his presidency when he, you know, says that he looked into Putin's soul, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and saw it was good. This is someone we could work yeah, with. Right. Uh, turned out to maybe not be the case, at least to the extent that we wanted, uh, yeah. in terms of cooperation with our wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Mm-hmm. Russia did help to some extent with the war in Afghanistan. They certainly opposed us in the war in Iraq. Uh, Hillary tries to do the same thing, and as previously, it, it doesn't go so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've got relations uh, ameliorating to some extent immediately, but then kind of the the tension, the suspicion uh, comes back in. Um, Vladimir says, Putin says, there's no, uh, they have no enemies. Their only enemy is uh, anybody that doesn't, I guess, respect them. That uh, he, they, they say America always wants them to be a vassal, uh, right? Just a, a yes man, and they'll never be the yes man. What would you, if you were advising our State Department, what should our position be with Russia? Can we, can we ever really fully bring them into an allied position? Do you think, or is it just something they are kind of what they are? 
At this point, it would be very difficult. Uh, it was if I was advising back in the 1990s, early 2000s, uh, I would certainly have a we few had things a little to more say. Hope there. Yeah, and I think we could have done a much better job in bringing Russia into political, economic treaties. We certainly did some of that, uh, and we've done some of it recently. Uh, Obama and Putin signed uh, a few years back kind of an anti-nuclear proliferation deal, uh, arms control. So we're still working on a few levels with the Russians. Uh, The Ukraine crisis has has just blown everything up. Yeah. Uh, And it's very difficult to see where things are going to go from here uh, in terms of our international relations. Uh, My counsel would be to try to treat Russia as a potential partner, but that has become so difficult in in recent years. Uh, President Putin has proved himself to be much more aggressive than he was in the 2000s. And you know, it's difficult to work with, with, with such a man at, at this point. Well, yeah, do you, do you sense, I mean, just even the air flight that was shot down over the Ukraine, access wasn't necessarily granted very quickly. There's still right. no answers. Right. I mean, I mean we, we think we know what happened. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Ukrainian pro-Russian rebel shot it down with weaponry acquired from, from Russia. Russia. Uh, they claim there's no proof of this and that it was, you know, the Ukrainian army that did it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, hundreds of innocents dead, right? Hundreds of innocent dead and very little being done. Yeah. I mean, in part, the sanctions are a result of this flight being shot down, but they're tied to other things as well. So it's really kind of just be careful and give it time. Yeah, I, I think this conflict certainly needs time at this point. We need a series of very gradual steps toward renewing economic relationships, but that can only occur if Putin withdraws his support for East Ukrainian rebels, which it looks like he's very loath to do. We yeah. still have reports of Russian military personnel, experts, advisors, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, a few of them were captured recently by the Ukrainian army. Hmm. Uh, and of course, they're being disavowed by Russia, saying, oh, these are just former soldiers there voluntarily. So, I mean, we still have uh, a conflict that is simmering, uh, that has not been resolved. Uh, and it's it's difficult to see the resolution of that anytime soon. Mm. Well, what's it like for you, just as we wrap up here, Jeff? Mm -hmm. Uh, Jeff, again, is a professor here at Brigham Young University of Russian and Eastern European history. You've lived there. I have. You've studied it immensely. They have an incredibly rich history, and yet – and then their current present state seems – they seem – I don't know. They seem proud. Absolutely, uh, as they should be. Right, and angry at at the West. Right. What is it like for you to see it? And, you know, what would your hopes be? My hopes are certainly for reconciliation uh, between us and them. It's a country that I enjoy visiting. Uh, I love to be with the Russian people. The Russian people, by and large, are uh, good-natured, friendly. Uh, I enjoy being with them. By the same token, they do have a deep-rooted suspicion of the West. Uh, And I think we can do better to try to overcome that. Uh, And the rhetoric from some of our politicians and thought leaders has not always been encouraging or helpful over the past several years. 
Now, is there a good reason for that? Yeah, perhaps, yeah. Uh, based on how uh, Putin has behaved in the international arena. Uh, but my hopes would certainly be for reconciliation. Yeah. Uh, and I would remind our listeners that even in the depths of the Cold War, there was this period known as detente in mm-hmm. the 1970s when President Nixon in particular was able to forge relationships, friendships, even with his Russian counterparts, where we saw a relaxation of tensions, where we saw a deepening of cultural exchanges, academic exchanges. Uh, And I think we should remember that moment and perhaps strive toward that. That's a great model, isn't it? Yeah. And and maybe it's kind of you need time and the right partners at the right time. You do. And then a really good party. That always helps. (laughs) Well, we appreciate you. Dr. Jeff Hardy, thanks for joining us. It's been my pleasure. And Thank taking, you. I think, a difficult topic and making it a lot easier. There you have it, my friends. A little Russia 101. Interesting, interesting stuff. We'll take a break, come back, uh, continue looking at some of the headlines. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, there's so many things we could talk to Jeff about. But it's also so complicated. And yet we hear about the Ukraine situation all of the time on the news. <sighs> it's a crazy town. Yeah, who would you're not gonna give up your you know, your resort town. No. Where all your ships are, you know. Yeah. That's where their sub bases and some of their naval base they don't have a port. No, uh, uh, in a warm water port, everything's like up in the north, and it's that's bogged why, in. So that's why you keep seeing their submarines popping up everywhere because they don't have anywhere to put them. So all of a sudden they're off of but, Sweden, yeah. then they're off of Alaska. Well, they have <laughs> a sub base. No, they're just out there floating. Okay, you think they have a sub base? I think you know everything, but I know. Did you ever see the Hunt for Red October? Yes, love that show. They show them floating out of the sub base. They have a sub base. Now that is that was that was made in Hollywood. No, it was real. Read the book. Nah, it's fiction, but you know it's true. I can't. I've got to go get my <laughs> foot taped. Read the fictional book and pretend like it's true. I do. But um, interesting stuff. Any other headlines going on that uh, you know we can open up? Yesterday, the U.S. government turned over or released a bunch of documents that they picked up when. Bin Laden was killed. Yes. Part of that report, they said there was computers and a, quote, treasure trove of intelligence they found. Some of those documents have been released. By like three years later. Four years later. So if you think about that, so, okay, so these have all been cleared, but it shows he's actually a very loving dad. Um, No. He's a hate-filled dad? It doesn't really describe his relationship with his children. Oh, I thought it was all about his wife, love letters to his wife, and No. no, what was it about? Well, documents swept up in the raid, uh, English language books that he had. Mm-hmm. He had, a, he had like a library. It was on his computer. Not really something he trucked around. He liked but conspiracy books. He had books by Bob Woodward. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? And b- a bunch of conspiracy texts, some about the Freemasons, the Illuminati. He had uh, conspiracy books on 9-11. Really? So. Why? You'd think he'd have a pretty good idea what happened. 
with 9-11. Yeah. And he liked to read the conspiracy books to see what other people said. There was a bunch of books that he had, that there several books he had, that uh, were trying to tell you who bin Laden was. Okay. So, so he's he was reading, reading about himself. Other ex, you know, experts trying to get, get, get into his head and give you kind of the psychological profile. And so he'd read them to see if they were close in his mind. In terms of the materials that are there, some of the things that we found to be of note were that bin Laden was probably an avid conspiracy theorist, one senior intelligence of, uh, official reports. Of the 38 full-length English-language books he had on possession, about half of them were conspiracy theory books. Really? That, to me, that's just interesting. Of all the things that the worst terrorist of all time could be reading, yeah, like Mein Kampf or something yeah. he's reading. Well, a, a lot of them were how, like, the United States and we, we basically run the world and yeah. the money markets and everything else. Um, it said there was a um, Al-Qaeda application form for joining. Now, this seems sort of like really an application form. Well, sure. Do they have one? It seems maybe this is something that's tossed in to be a joke. party affiliations we need to know but about? But it's like, please enter the uh, – on the on – the, you'll see these around. They're on several of the websites now. But it says, please enter the required information accurately and truthfully, it reads. Write clearly and legibly, name, age, marital status. Do you wish to execute a suicide operation? <laughs> and then what was like, what do you hope to accomplish in your uh, your path to jihad? It's like an application. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's like trying to get into college. Yeah, it's a college application. Why do you want to come to who do we contact university? In, in the event of your martyrdom, who should we contact? <laughs> Stuff like that. That's How why, many virgins would you like waiting for you in That's heaven? why it seems like a joke. Mm-hmm. It seems like something you just sort of make and put out there on the web so people laugh at it. But I mean, and you think, and they're, I guess they're processing these forms like... What if, do they ever reject a terrorist? I, I'm I sorry. I'm sorry. You're a little extreme. We had for a better us. candidate. There it's, was a more qualified candidate. So. Yeah. Good so, luck in your job search. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's not you, it's us. Also, one of the documents taken from uh, bin Laden's compound and released Wednesday claims that Jews were able to control the world forces with sociology and psychology. Mm. Another document released from the Trove instructs members to avoid talking about. The Jews and Palestine when talking to the Germans. Okay. Great The suspect is very sensitive to Germany, and it will bring negative results to our goal. Holy cow. He was afraid of Iran. Yeah. He didn't like Iran. There was a really interesting letter written by one of his children in 2009, which he uh, said he he hadn't seen his kids since this boy was 13 years old. And the boy says, my heart is sad from the long separation, the boy said, yearning to meet you. My eyes still remember the last time I saw you when you were under the olive tree and you gave each one of us a Muslim, uh, uh, gave us Muslim prayer beads. I mean, imagine you're getting into the head and the family life of bin Laden. Who would have thought? Right. And we'll probably see more as as people comb over these documents Mm -hmm. and bring out more nuggets of information. Uh, The gyrocopter guy. Remember the guy that flew to the, landed right in front of the Capitol building? Yeah. What's the big deal? Um, He, let's see, I already told you all that. He will be indicted by a grand jury and is facing six charges and a potential 9.5 years in prison. He was just trying to deliver letters. Yeah. It's not... Not a big deal. So he, he should be in a, a grand jury. He has been indicted. So yeah. Well, you just can't we'll fly to the Capitol in your gyroscope, gyrocopter guy. We're going to take a break, my friends. Uh, hour number one, it's in the can. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio.
is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Got a great show for you today. Busy, busy, busy. You got to get busy, right? You got to be busy. You can't just sit there and think. Heaven forbid. One of our guests coming on a little bit later uh, is a Professor uh, Brad Stotts, who's going to be teaching us about some studies that they've been doing that maybe you ought to plan more. Because just being busy, not usually a good sign of productivity. Movement it, it does not equal productive. It looks good, though. It looks very good. You're sitting in an office just staring at the wall. Yeah. Doesn't look good. How does it look if you're underneath the table or desk in an office with the lights out asleep? Is your door shut? Yes. Okay, you're fine. But I have a window they can look in. Is it locked? No. Because if you lock the door and turn the lights out, they'll think you've stepped out. Whereas you're just under the table sleeping. Great point. Great point. You really need to sell that you're not home. So I shouldn't wear my pajamas either. Well, you can, but you just need to have enough sleep. time to change back into your. I can't sleep in my work clothes. I always got to get comfy. It's like when those people come through my neighborhood and they're selling things. They're knocking on the door yeah. and they want to talk to you. Um, my tactic is to just sit there and ignore the door knock, the doorbell. Yeah. My son is, Dad, someone's at the door. And he get runs door, down to the, the door, 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 opens yeah, the door. No, like, no. What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> That's a, like my wife thinks you're obligated to open the door no. because they're knocking. You have a choice. And you're not obligated to answer the phone either. No. I have, a, I have an answering machine. Just I've already got this whole study down. Let you it happen. You can just sit still and make life happen. James does it. Yeah. When Jimmy. somebody knocks on my door, I go to the door. Do you have a door? It, yeah. Yeah. And there's like a pane of glass. I look at them through the glass and just don't do anything. You just, I just wiggle, stand you just there wiggle your finger. No, no. Slowly shake my head. <laughs> not today. <laughs> nice try, pal. Interesting. Anyway, well, that'll be a great topic uh, coming up today. Um, but it doesn't end there. We also bring you the latest headlines. Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal. Yes. May run for office. He's formed an exploratory committee, sure, as we learned yesterday. On Tuesday, issued an executive order enshrining protections for people and businesses that do not want to serve same-sex couples. So he's he's done one of them, their executive orders that President Clinton does that all the or GOP, Obama. or Obama, I mean, does that seem to, that the Make GOP hates. Yeah. Yes. So he went ahead and did that he in just his did state. One. But he, he did says, it on the most controversial issue. He did. He goes, we don't support discrimination in Louisiana and we do support religious liberty. This is uh, Jindal okay. in a statement. These two values can be upheld at the same time. The order came shortly after a panel of the state legislature voted down a proposed bill the Marriage and Conscience Act, that would have had a similar effect. In nixing the legislation, the panel said it was concerned the so-called Religious Freedom Bill could trigger a backlash similar to those seen in other states that pursued religious freedom earlier this year in Indiana and Arkansas. Yeah, he's trying to just In the most high-profile case, Indiana Governor Mike Pence dropped his defense of religious freedom, uh, the Religious Freedom Law, and called for it to be tweaked to prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation. Critics of this move accused Jindal who's launched a presidential exploratory committee of pandering to the religious right in an attempt to improve his odds of winning the GOP nomination. Oh, you're just playing politics. He's playing politics. Well, it seems smart. But he is a politician. Yeah. I don't know if he can do anything without playing politics. That's a great point. 
as all politicians do. Just like plumbers, they play pump. They play plumber. They play plumber. They could play politics. Are you playing plumber with me? <laughs> Actually, yes, I. <laughs> that's it. So that that that's something that may uh, come back to bite him, or it may come back to strengthen his cause towards a. Uh, Possible presidential runs as right. he's still exploring. Justice Department announced Wednesday that Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase, Barclays, and the Royal Bank of Scotland will plead guilty to multiple crimes, including violating antitrust laws. A group of traders who referred to themselves as the cartel, the cartel, rigged the market to manipulate interest rates and foreign currencies. Oh man! The traders executed the scheme for five years through 2012. UBS, the fifth bank in question, said Wednesday that it will plead guilty to manipulating the London Interbank offered rate called the LIBOR, which is a a big deal if you're in the financial sectors, I guess. The pay of $545 million in fines to U.S. authorities. In total, the five banks will pay $5.4 billion. The bank's parent companies are expected to enter the guilty pleas in a Connecticut federal court on Wednesday. They're pleading guilty. This is probably to keep them out out of jail. Well, the company pleads guilty and they pay a fine. Yeah. There's no actual charges. No individuals who made these decisions are indicted. Nothing happens to anyone other Everyone than stays the same. The we... big company pays a fine and they move on. They're able to continue operating just like normal. There's did, no Did you notice the words that you were using? Cartel. Yes. Executed. Absolutely. These are like this is like mafia terms. Yeah. And yet so th- this group of uh, bankers now have pled guilty the banks have with the government I guess will make 6 billion dollars, 5 and a half billion. And everyone's good. Sure. And they just move on business as normal. Back to business. No one is indicted. No one is held individually responsible for decisions somebody made. Don't we normally call a cartel like like the drug cartel? Yes. But is that how they handle the drug cartel? They just pay your fines and then everyone's good. No, they usually send in a SWAT team and the leader gets killed is how how it's happened. Occasionally they get arrested. It just seems different with the banks. It seems like a different approach. Maybe – but it's interesting they call themselves the cartel. Yeah. Probably thought of it as, as funny. Uh, Waco police recovered 1,000 weapons in the arrest. <laughs> what? That works out to 5.6 weapons per person arrested. We were just trying to talk. <laughs> oh, they started patting them down and all these things are falling out. The weapons range from brass knuckles, chains, knives to an AK-47 that was on oh, did premises. I? Did I? I thought I left that on the bike. Police found one gun and a bag of chips and uncovered a knife and a bag of flour, it says. So this is all guns the, everywhere. This all stemming from the restaurant in Waco, Texas, where the biker gangs were meeting and the arrests <laughs> happened after nine people were killed. But 1,000 weapons. Well, when you think about 1,000 weapons, that could have gone a lot worse than nine people dying. Absolutely. <laughs> like everybody could have died. And, the, the, you know, the, the police do the thing where they, they go in a conference room and lay out all the weapons. Yeah. It's amazing what's there. Yeah, it's like they all bring them in on machines. Beep, beep, yeah. beep. They're it's dumping crazy. guns and chains and Fox, knives. Fox News has announced guidelines Wednesday that will uh, widow down the field of participants in the first Republican yes, debate in 2016. Yes, because you can't have 16. Can't have possibly 16 people may run. Right. And you, it's hard to fill a, have a stage big enough for that many people. What are the rules? It will require contenders to place in the top 10 in an average of the five most recent national polls in the running up to the event, narrowing what is expected to be a field of 16. So okay. you have to be in the top five or the top 10 of the average five most recent polls. That's it. So they're really narrowing it down to 10. 10 seems like still a lot of people. Right. But they feel they're including enough without... A clown car situation, which yeah. it kind of is anyways. The idea, you know, so many people packed in a small area. Now, if they showed up in a clown car, that would be fantastic. 
that would be funny because mm-hmm. I think it would feed into kind of the yeah. chaos that's but going on. But everyone's like, don't call it a clown car because Meanwhile, CNN laid out a different approach for the uh, the second debate on September 16th, which will be split into two parts, one featuring the top 10 candidates in public polling and a second in what will include lower-tiered candidates who garner at least 1% in polls. Hmm. So you'll have the A team and the B team. And they said the people that are on the B team will also get more airtime than those will be on the A team or something. If people are going to watch. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So that, it's just funny how they're going to parse this and set it up. And uh, The Chinese Navy issued warnings eight times as a U.S. surveillance plane on Wednesday swooped over the islands that Beijing is using to extend its zone of influence. We the, talked about the, the islands they're islands. creating in the ocean. Right. Dumping cement in, building it up, and then paving it over so they can have. Are they some making sort of really land. cool designs like Dubai did? No, I okay. think they're just making big blobs of cement in the ocean. Uh, the series of man-made islands in the massive Chinese military buildup on them have alarmed the Pentagon, which is carrying out the surveillance flights in order to make clear the U.S. does not recognize China's territorial claims. CNN was on board; they had their cameras, and as they're flying over, you'd hear the radio warning them. And, yeah, and it was. This is the Chinese Navy. This is the Chinese Navy. Please go away <laughs> to avoid misunderstanding. <laughs> That's it. That, see, they could Please said, go away. We will blow you out of the air if you do not go away. They weren't threatened. They were, Please, kind just, airplane. Just go away. Turn away <laughs> so that there is not a misunderstanding. That was very polite of very China. Very polite. Very polite of China. They, you know, they could have been jerks. They, they weren't. And uh, into the high school year. Yes, there's seven. There's pranks that come up. Uh oh. People do things. Yeah. A property listing on Craigslist boasts three gyms, a fully stocked library, and a theater with full sur- uh, full sound surround <laughs> system. The Ohio high school uh, kid put her, uh, his school up on Craigslist, charged only $2,000 <laughs> for the building. He tossed in all lower classmen and uh, uh, two luxury kitchens, six locker rooms, and then all the freshmen, obviously. So, freshmen free. <laughs> Get all the freshmen you need. Interesting. So you can buy a school in Ohio for two grand. Two grand. That's a deal. It's a great deal. I mean, real estate prices as they as they yeah. are makes you wonder. Maybe we need more children in real estate. <laughs> Apparently, somebody's making a profit. Good stuff. Uh, we're going to take a break, my friends, and come back. When we come back, we're going to be talking about unproductive busyness. When you just get to work and just start churning and burning and taking all the calls and doing everything you got to do. Is it possible that all your busyness is actually not getting you ahead of the game? We've got some research on it uh, that was in the latest Harvard Business Review. And we'll be talking about that with Brad Stotts after the break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Hey, friends, welcome back to the show. Uh, Are you the type who has about a million and one things to do on your to-do list today? Do you ever make it totally through the list? You know, I never do. With everything today moving at such a fast and interconnected pace, there is no end to the should-dos on our schedules. And uh, the Harvard Business Review has actually raised an interesting question about whether all of our busyness can actually be quantified as productiveness. Professor Brad Stotts, co-author of a recent article for Harvard Business Review, joins us now to talk about how a little idle time planning 
can actually increase your productivity. Professor Stotts, welcome to the show. Hi there. Great to be here. It's great to have you. I loved your article, uh, The Remedy for Unproductive Busyness, because we we really – there's something about us as humans, it seems like. We have this aversion to idleness. Is that is that accurate? No, I, th- I think that's right. I think that uh, we we want to do something, right? We right. feel like uh, there's there's work that needs accomplishing, uh, and so it's you know the right thing for us to do is to dive right in and, and start working on it. And and oftentimes that ends up being being the wrong thing for us to do because we I, I, that's it, I guess, is that we we jump in, we hop in. But a lot of the research you've done, and the fun thing about this article, it's filled with other research that yep. kind of validates each of the points. Um, but you, you basically say there's two reasons that we often feel so busy, and, and they're both of the reasons are very – they're self-imposed. We put them on ourselves. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think you hit it kind of where you started off, that this aversion to idleness, that, that you know, even when we should kind of take that pause, um, either physiologically, because our body needs the rest, or perhaps cognitively, uh, that we should be thinking about things we don't. Um, and then we kind of compound that because of this bias for action, uh, that, that, that jumping in or the, the doing something when, when nothing, nothing might be better. And, and one of the examples we use is, is some research by others um, looking at professional soccer goalies. And it's uh, one of those studies that uh, once you read it, you say, oh, I wish, <laughs> wish I had done something like that. Yeah. Um, but, but they look at, at this question of, of taking penalty kicks uh, and, and kind of what, what does a goalie do and what should a goalie do? Um, and what's so fascinating about it is that, you know, we watch, uh, we watch that you know, on TV and, and we see that, that most of the time the goalies, you know, decision, do I dive left? Do I dive right? Um, and they don't stop very many, 13, 14% uh, of the shots. But, but if a goalie just stays still, uh, then they end up stopping about a third of the shots, but they almost never do that. They don't. If they would just stand still, they're going to have a better shot than the jumping. It's, it's, is it just, you don't want to look stupid. They don't want to be standing in the middle and then have it be shot to the right. So let's just jump to the right. Oh, yeah, oh, exactly. Right? Shot to I mean, the left. <laughs> yeah, no, nobody's going to fault the goalie for guessing the wrong way, right? Right, it's a right. Flip. Um, and so as long as you jump somewhere, you say, oh, you know, he made a valiant effort. Um, when in fact, you know, go, going nowhere is at least in this particular case, perhaps a better choice. It's such an interesting idea because none of us want to be looking flat-footed. Yep. So let's just jump. Yeah, exactly, and and I think and and it's understandable because in in many certainly of the corporate context that we work in, we we know that uh, you know we're often rewarded for the um, for the for looking like we're busy uh, rather than actually for the work we get done. Unfortunately. Oh my heavens, who'd have thunk? I mean, yep. and, and the idea—what an interesting idea too—of just studying goalies for heaven's sakes. Um, hanging back though, you're kind of saying just just one of the keys and one of the rules that you bring up a lot is instead of just jumping into your work day, just stay kind of in the middle. Just stay neutral and maybe get your head in the game first. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think that's a good example of something that, you know, data, looking at data, looking at analytics um, can actually help us understand, right? And, and sometimes the answer is not conventional wisdom, is not, you know, I should be studying whether the, the shooter likes to go, to go to his left or go to his right. Uh, instead, looking at the data, you say, well, guess what? On average, um, staying in the middle and 
you know, maybe a better choice. And so how do we think about for our own context, you know, perhaps some, some data that we could look at to, mm. you know, if it's a business context, what, what we're doing and, and maybe what's a novel way of, of kind of flipping things around. It, it's, it's counterintuitive because in your article you say about the, the soccer goalies, 33% of the time if they'd stay in the middle, they'd block more shots, yet only 6.3% of the time do the goalies ever stay in the middle. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not the common uh, approach. And and inevitably, that probably helps out some, right? So if the goalie stayed 100% of the time in the middle. Yeah, then um, everyone would know. One would imagine you'd see some different results. But suddenly you're staying 7%, 8%, 15%. You you, you would imagine at least that, that those results would improve. But, but this is a very basic idea, really. So the first idea is that you kind of bring up is stay in the middle instead of just getting really busy. But yep. then – and I guess, too, that just supports the idea that we have this incessant need to act. Like I, I myself, even just driving home, I'm totally willing to drive – instead of waiting four more minutes in traffic to get on the freeway that would make this faster, I'm willing to take – a back road that actually takes me 10 minutes out of the way, but I'm moving the entire time. Uh, I'm right there on the same page with you. That uh, It's the that dumbest thing. That tendency. Yeah. What's that about? Like, is it just, I guess, sitting there? It's just... Yeah. I mean, it is, right? And, and it's, um, I mean, it's interesting. We're actually doing some separate work um, trying to look at commutes um, and trying to understand how people can more productively use their commutes. Um, and I think that the case you're describing, and, it, and it's the case that, that I live too, um, that instead, you know, I obsess on sitting there for those four minutes. And so that drives me crazy. Yeah. Um, and then quite reasonably, an extra 15 minutes is, is arguably a rational response because I avoid that frustration. <laughs> Um, what we what we see when we look at how people use their commutes um, is that those that use it productively flip it around. So when they have that four minutes, instead of you know cursing at the traffic that's in front of them, they actually use it for planning purposes. Yeah. Um, so they think about you know both debriefing their day if they're on the way home, or importantly if they're on the way to work. You know what what am I trying to accomplish today? What can I get done? Um, and so you get kind of a double benefit there. You you save that time you might have lost by taking the longer route, um, but you also switch a frustration into something that sets you up to be productive during the mm. day. And all of a sudden, you're also – if I sit there and engage my mind instead of just getting busy trying to avoid traffic, I'm, it seems like I'm, I'm going to be receiving data. Now I'm yep. gathering information that makes this process more effective tomorrow or today. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that one of the things we find in, in other kind of creativity type research is that as we move into different surroundings, we have different stimuli around us, our brains are able to make different connections. So you may even get the extra benefit of, of approaching that problem in a new way um, as you're thinking about things of, oh, you know what, maybe actually I should go talk to Mary tomorrow about this uh, because I think she's done something related. Um, and so that may help you as well. It's so interesting. Again, we're talking with uh, our great uh, researcher, for heaven's sakes, Brad Stotts is joining us. You can find out about him just by following him on Twitter, at Br Stotts. Stotts is spelled S-T-A-A-T-S. And um, he wrote, uh, to me, just a wonderful article, too, because it's so full of research. Remedy for unproductive busyness. Uh, two of the big keys, he says, are people have an aversion to idleness. It's just kind of nature's way of keeping us moving, and we have a bias towards action, even if the action doesn't necessarily equate to productivity. Man, it's like it's more like we're robots, right? Like we're just kind of going on this natural 
I don't know, uh, scripting versus actually being present and thinking. It, it is, and, and I mean, I, I think the you know we we, ha- we can't give ourselves too hard of a time about it. No, it's um, natural. In, in in many ways, it's it's even appropriate, right? If we had to reinvent every wheel every day, yeah, we would never get anything done. That's true. And so the fact that we go on autopilot, um, you know, most of our lives, frankly, is is a good thing. Um, it allows us to actually, you know, get anything done. Uh, the problem, and I think what research is is being helpful to increasingly show us, is that well, there, there's some ways um, that. Uh, this may point us in the wrong direction. And so then we need to think about what are the the tools, techniques, practices that we can use uh, to kind of turn things around. You bet. Let's take a break um, and we'll come back and continue this discussion with Professor Brad Brad Stotts. I want to know some of the rules. One of, I know the big keys that he does talk a lot about is reflective and being more reflective or reflecting on our day, a little bit more pre-planning before we just jump into stuff. We'll talk about uh, his research there and his findings there with uh, Professor Brad Stotts. More after this break. The Matt Townsend Show. On the phone, we're talking with uh, Professor Brad Stotts, who's a visiting professor at Wharton and uh, has written a, a study, How to Improve Knowledge. He um, also has written an article, The Remedy for Unproductive Busyness, which was in the Harvard Business Review. It's really a fun, I don't know, I think it's a really cool article about being busy, folks, doesn't necessarily equate to productivity. You know, movement doesn't equate to results. And uh, he's joining us on the line. Uh, Brad, welcome back. Thanks. It's uh, super interesting stuff we're talking about. One of the things you do mention in the article is we we need to maybe, instead of just filling up the moment with movement and, you know, and activity, busyness, we might want to spend more time reflecting. What do you mean? And and what kind of, what does that reflection look like? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, So... This idea of uh, kind of contemplative reflection, uh, you know, we can we can trace back, trace back for for frankly millennia, um, and you know it, it's there suggesting that it might actually help us be be more productive, and and so we wanted to take that kind of out for a spin um, and work with an organization to look, um, you know, could we change their practices in a way that meaningfully uh, kind of impacted workers' performance, um, and so what we did was we partnered with uh, an Indian outsourcer uh, and was looking at their technical service operations. So um, in particular, uh, where they were training workers uh, to uh, answer uh, kind of questions, technical questions that folks would have uh, for different uh, computer software products. Mm. Um, And um, in that uh, preparation process, folks went through about a month of training. Uh, they had college degrees, uh, but this was kind of on the, the ins and outs of the product that they would support. Um, and at the end of that month, they would take uh, an examination and basically had to score high enough on, on the exam uh, in order to then move on to the floor. Huh. Uh, and so we took a really simple idea uh, that we said, look, let's at the end of each day, um, over this two-week period, kind of in the middle of the training process, 
um, give them 15 minutes to reflect. Uh, so what we'll ask them to do is just you know, write about the two uh, kind of most important lessons you had today. Um, and so the idea there is that, that it would do a couple of things that one is kind of it would, it would help them in their thinking, uh, that help them cognitively to see connections in their work, how things perhaps today related to um, yesterday, uh, related to where they think they might be going. Um, the second thing is, is more motivational, that, uh, that it could help them in terms of their self-efficacy, in terms of their confidence, their belief that they could accomplish these things. Um, the Stan Smith, the tennis great, um, said, uh, experience tells you what to do, confidence allows you to do it. Mm. Uh, and so the idea is that reflection you know, would, could potentially help you see, look, I, I actually know more than I realize. Uh, and so then kind of with that structure, 15 minutes a day for, for two weeks, um, we implemented uh, a field experiment. So we randomly assigned groups to either get this, this treatment of the two weeks of reflection um, or just to go through their normal processes. So the group that went through the normal processes recognized got you know, technically an extra 15 minutes of training because they both stopped at the same time each day. It was just 15 minutes got moved over huh. to reflection for the one group. Um, we then tracked uh, kind of a, a couple hundred folks um, over time. Uh, we watched how they performed on the exam. Um, and at the end of the process, we found that uh, the group that went through the reflection condition um, ended up uh, about 23% higher on the wow. final score. If you just look at pass rates, it's the same sort of thing. Um, so uh, I think that we weren't surprised to see an effect. Of yeah, right. We did it in the first place. We were surprised at the size of the effect. Um, I, w I wouldn't have predicted beforehand it would be be that large. I mean, that's that's a what is that like a grade or two? That's yep. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. No, I mean it's the difference between kind of keeping the job and and losing the job for many folks. Um, and, and and the reflection was done in the class. Yes. So, so they would take the class, learn, they'd be trained, and then you gave them 15 minutes to reflect on what they had learned. At the end of the day, exactly. And, and it was their choice what they reflected right, on, right. right? So what they would write on. Would you, would you, did, you prime, did you prime them or prompt them with questions? No, I mean, just the, what just were thinking. the two most important lessons from today? So we didn't try to, you know, what did you learn about the hash or something Man. today that yeah. was you know, specific. That that to me that's like groundbreaking. I because I sit there and I, I work with a lot of couples, teach classes, and um, I actually have them go home. And then when they come back to class the next week, they have two hours of training. They then have a lot of homework to go do, stuff to go practice. When they come back to class, I have them reflect on what they learned over the week. But um, I had no idea that that is – it's just powerful. It's, it's yeah, kind of intuitive it again, right? It, exactly. I mean, I think that's the thing, right? If we look at, you know, many, many – it's funny with this question. In some ways, I came to it from, you know, when I'd been a practitioner and did things like learning journals, I kind of, you know, turned my nose up at them. Okay, fine. I'll do it because you're telling right. me to, but right. it doesn't mean I have to like it. Um, and, and was left as, well, well, hold on. Maybe it's, being, it's more useful than I appreciate. Sure. Um, and I think that's what, that's what the research shows. Well, and, and so if, if we were going to take this into our lives, we could sit down at the end of a day and spend five minutes, ten minutes thinking about the day and taking out our best ideas, our best practices, and maybe making a list. Is that how you, what you'd suggest? Yeah, I think, I think it's 
two things you probably want to do. The, the first is around that, is really thinking about, you know, okay, what happened today? What can I learn from it? And, you know, sometimes it may be at the end of the day. It, it may also be, you know, you have an important meeting and you come back to your desk or you're driving back from a sales meeting and trying to think about, you know, what happened there? Why did it happen? What can I do better next time? What should I definitely repeat next time because uh-huh. it went so well? Um, it's sort of closing that learning loop, right? I've had the action, um, and then now the thinking that goes with it to really make those connections in the brain to hopefully, you know, continue the good behavior and, and change the behavior that, that needs the changing. Yeah, how many times do we go to a meeting and handle the meeting and then we're so busily getting back to the next meeting that we don't capture? We don't. Exactly. And, and then we miss these opportunities that are all right there. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's it, right? That you know, there there's all of this opportunity for improvement. Um, we just don't normally have time in our day uh, to actually permit it. And so, unfortunately, we then you know come back you know four days later. Um, we're now trying to kind of fuzzily recollect you know the basic facts from the meeting because so much has happened between now and then. Yeah. Um, and so we lose kind of the base you know memory of it, but we also lose that. Okay, well, well, what should I take away from it? That's cool. That's a great tool. So that's reflection. What uh, what are some other tools we should be using that might help us, you know, manage our busyness a little bit better? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are a few things to think about. We've talked already a little bit, but it's worth reiterating around planning. Um, and so that's, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I was saying there are kind of two things. One is is looking at the reflective piece. Um, the other is is doing just that little bit of planning. It can be at the end of the day. It can be at the beginning of the day, arguably maybe at both. Um, as you think about, okay, what what's coming tomorrow um, and, you know, how should I address it? Um, and I think that little bit of structure um, helps helps really guide us um, and and direct us. That uh, there's there's another fascinating study we talk about uh, in the article uh, by some some researchers from uh, the London School of Economics uh, looking at Indian CEOs, um, and they were able to uh, to get data on how they spent their time. Um, and what's so fascinating to me about that study um, is that you know what they saw is that those CEOs that you know over a couple week period um, spent more time on planning, uh, so thinking about kind of the, the tactical plan, also the strategic plans, um, showed you know, significantly higher firm level productivity and profitability. So it wasn't just an individual story, you know, that they were, they were doing better, but that that translated all the way to their entire firm. Hmm. Wow. I mean, it, it, so so the, the, the CEOs that were more, more focused on having some time planning and prepping and, and actually even more collaborative with their own employees yep. were more productive than those that didn't do as much planning but were were constantly busy but working with a lot more of the outsiders yeah, exactly. So, the, so those more productive CEOs were really getting the leverage that you would hope to see if you're at the top of the organization, yeah. right? You, you can't do everything by yourself. You've got lots of folks that are working for and with you. Um, and so, again, I think not shockingly, those that, that used that did better. Um, and so, again, I mean, I, I think that as I look at 
kind of this line of work, um, there's a part of me that sort of has a, well, well, Brad, no duh reaction. Um, right. and, and, and then kind of I have to pause and say, well, well, hold on. If, it, if it's so obvious, you know, why, why don't we do more of it? Um, and so I think that's really the, the value in, in focusing on it um, is, is getting ourselves to, to take that pause. And uh, we kind of conclude with, with I think it, it, it's probably one of the best pieces of advice that, that I ever got from a mentor. Uh, that uh, I was sitting down, I was having one of those meetings where I had, you know, 25 items on my to-do list and we had, you know, 30 minutes to cover everything and in no way were we going to hit all of these items. And so I thought, well, if I just talk faster, um, <laughs> then, uh, then we'll accomplish more. Yeah. Um, and, and partway through, he kind of put his hand out and said, Brad, hold, hold on. Um, you know, and, and I stopped and, you know, kind of took a breath and he said, look, look at me, you know, Brad, don't avoid thinking by being busy. Um, and I think if there's kind of one thing to take away, that, that's probably the nicest way to summarize it, that, that we shouldn't avoid thinking um, by being busy if we want to be productive, if we want to accomplish those tasks that truly are important to us. Oh, such great advice. I appreciate it. Brad Stotts, really, uh, uh, that's a fantastic article and great uh, mentor you had there. Don't yeah, avoid exactly. thinking. I'm- so, so grateful to get to get to interact with him. Well, keep up your great work and writing. Can hardly wait to uh, follow more of it. Again, follow Brad Stotts at Br Stotts S T A A T S at Br Stotts, and uh, you'll continue to get this this great insight. We're going to take a break. Come back. Do a little of the coach's corner when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Remember, on this program, we like to give you the tools to make a a difference in your life. You know, it's one thing to run through the headlines. It's another to have a clue what to do with it. Loved our last guest, um, uh, Brad Stotts, who was uh, the author of the article, The Remedy for Unproductive Busyness. And you know it. Uh, We've talked about it a lot on the show. Average attention span is dropping we now have, I think, about an eight-second attention span, which is pathetic, and uh, especially knowing that a goldfish has a nine-second attention span. So we, we stay busy. We like to keep moving. We think with our wonderful technology that it is the key to making us so much more productive, except we're also a lot less present, right? And we talk about that a lot on the show but one of the things that um, was brought up by Brad in his article is this this important lesson of um, of how would you put it? I guess he called it reflection. It's learning, right? Learning shouldn't be like a oh yeah, we ought to do that. That's it's like we're all surprised that we're not learning. Have you ever been so busy? One of my favorite quotes. Have you ever been so busy patching uh, chasing the flies that you don't go patch the screen? We can chase flies forever, but we never seem to be patching the problems. We never seem to fix the problems. And we say, well, I can't. Hello, I'm chasing flies. And yet a little bit of time. And the research is even showing you don't need a lot of time, just a few minutes. 15 minutes a day, according to his study, could increase your productivity and your learning by 22%. I mean, that's amazing. 
What does 22% of a more productive employee get you? If your if your employees could produce be 20% more productive financially, that would change the game. What if you as a mom could figure out through a little reflective thinking you could become 20% more effective as a mother or as a father. So we sit there and we feel like we're burning the candle at both ends and we are. We are worn out. We don't have more time, and because you can't have more time, maybe what you need to do is we need to figure out a way to get more learning, get more information. So there's a wonderful tool I learned a long time ago, and it's very basic, that you can use everywhere you go. After every situation, after every event, after every everything that's important to you, just go basically think of three things, Okay. Continue, I call it, stop and start. What do I need to continue doing? So after um, I've had a meeting or a situation or even a show, we do. Uh, I do in my mind this idea of a post – I call it a post-mortem, uh, but that sounds horrible. Um, but it's actually an after-incident report. Police do it all the time. You know, um, The military, they do these types of uh, reviews um, after – you know, a major situation like a Ferguson or a Baltimore, they ought to be doing uh, some learning, don't you think? And basically all I ask myself is, okay, after today's show, based on today's show, what do I need to continue doing from today's show? What worked today? What do I need to stop doing? And what do I need to start doing? Continue, stop, start. And it's a really interesting thing. You could do it now, wouldn't it have been great if you had done it for last summer? What should we continue doing that does that works really well during the summertime with our kids? What should we stop doing that we just shouldn't do? Don't ever do this again. And what should we make sure we start doing? If we had done that at the end of last summer, we could be implementing those changes in preparation for today. Now, you still might have an incredible memory, but are you going to take the time to do that for your children's summer? Continue, stop, start. And it's a, it's, a, it's a powerful, powerful tool. We do it a lot, and, and I do it a lot with, um, with couples. I don't use the words continue, stop, start. But when they sit down, we teach a, a process called couples meetings where once a week for six weeks these couples come in. They've already learned some communication skills, and they sit in a really safe environment where they can talk. And the first thing we identify is we just have them rate their relationship, rate your marriage on a scale from 1 to 10. Then we basically ask them what's working, which is the continue question. And they spend about 10 or 15 minutes making a list of everything this week that went really well. And they, they shore up what's good. And part of that is because every day there's something good happening. And as humans, if we would start identifying what's happening— we can, we can go from there. So these are couples that are struggling, and yet they can still spend 20 minutes once a week identifying what's working. Well, we talked really well that one night. Now, there may have been four other nights where they argued, but that one night we really communicated really effectively. What else worked that night? What else was different that night? Well, we actually helped each other with dinner, and we cleaned up together. Great. What else was working? And we just make a list of everything that's, what's, that's working. 
That's what's continuing. What do we need to continue doing? And we build on a really good list. And, and what I suggest, too, is we keep identifying new things that are working this week that, weren't, that we didn't notice last week. So we can find as many good things as we can. Then we work on what do we need to stop doing? And that's where you could maybe make a list of some things that didn't go so well. Well, we did fight those other three nights. We could talk about right now those, those talks. And then you, we could talk about what do we need to start doing more of? So in these meetings, the couples work on what what worked. Then we spend about 45 minutes using communication skills to talk about what we need to stop doing. And we give them each a chance to communicate and understand what the other's saying. And then we spend at the very end of the meeting, by the way, the meeting's about an hour and a half. Now, you don't always have to take an hour and a half, but for couples that are in serious you know, turmoil, an hour and a half's pretty handy. <laughs> And then we talk about what do we need to start doing as a couple? What does that need to look like? And I have them actually process through four lights, I call them. I believe every human being has four unique gifts that are lights that are designed to teach us and help us to be better. One of those lights is called self-awareness. We have the ability to recognize what part of the problem we are in our marriage. And if you're self-aware, you can grow that light so that you can understand more clearly how you influence your partner, what you do, what you don't do. Now, you got to be careful because sometimes that self-awareness, like, oh, I'm an idiot. I'm such a loser. That's not necessarily self-awareness. That's another, that's kind of self-pity. We don't want our self-awareness to take us into self-pity. We want our self-awareness to help us recognize that based on this conversation I'm having with my wife, I kind of need to pick my game up a little bit more in helping around the house. And we use our self-awareness as a light. Another light we use is, is, is empathy. What are my partner's needs and wants? And we have really a time to reflect on what, what is it my wife really needs based on what she's bringing up to me. Instead of fighting her about it, what is her deeper need here? What is she really struggling with? And then we explore that. And my empathy can understand her needs and her empathy can understand my needs. So now I'm aware of what part of the problem I am and I'm more aware of what my spouse needs. Then the next tool we use is vision. What do I want most here? And I have them go through the process of reflectively listening and thinking about their conversation and their marriage Well, we both want this. It seems like based on our conversation, we want to not fight three days out of seven. It seems like we want more of those good days instead of the bad days. It seems like we want to be united. You get clear on what you do want. What is your vision for a healthier relationship or life? And you could go through these same questions. What part of my job am I? Part of the problem am I? What are the needs and wants of the people around me at my work? What do I want most as an employee of this organization? And then the very last question is always my favorite. And it actually prompts us to go and know what to do. The very last question I call the conscience question. And we let our conscience be our guide. Then I just say, great, based on this conversation, based on the lights that I've turned on, what's the most important thing I could do this week with my wife to go have the greatest positive impact? And I believe your conscience will be your guide and it will tell you what you need to do. And my conscience might tell me I need to help more around the house like I did on that one night when it went really well. 
And my wife might come up with a completely different thing. She needs to be more patient or more willing to invite me to help instead of hoping I help based on our conversation. And then we both walk away with a conscience-driven solution that came from my four lights. And then that becomes our homework assignment with each other. And we look at each other and we commit to working on those two challenges, those two things our conscience led us to. And then we go try it again for a week. And then when we come back, we reflect a week. That's what I call a couples meeting. Doesn't have to be a beat down, doesn't have to be angry. It's just a learning opportunity. And we can do it with our executives. We can do it with everybody. What part of the problem are you? What are the needs and wants of the people around you? What do you want? What's your vision of what you want most here? And what's the most important thing you could do right now or this week? That same process could be done every day just as you end your day. What part of today did I impact really positively? Where did some of my less you know, attractive traits slip, slip into the day? It's just reflection, folks. You know it. I know it. It's just so hard, isn't it? But don't make the argument for how hard it is because when you think about it, it's not. If you just got out of a business meeting, take a second in your car and just reflect. Continue, stop, start. What should we continue based on that conversation? Write it down. What should we stop doing based on that conversation? Write it down. What should I start doing? Write it down. Oh, but I don't have anywhere to write it and I don't want to carry a – use your phone. Learning, folks. You're, you're wired to learn. And if we don't learn, then what on earth are we doing here? This is why we keep making the same mistakes over and over again. You are, you're an agent, folks. Every one of us are here to make a change and to make a life better. And so, and that life should certainly be yours. Let's start there. Let's just learn. Little here, little there. Line upon line. Eventually, we're going we're gonna to figure this thing out. We'll take a break, my friends. Again, we can't do the show without you, so stick with us. We're going to have a break, come back to some headlines, start a whole new hour. Next hour, we're going to be getting into some pretty interesting stuff as well. Also, uh, you know, basically how, how to stay a little happier based on what we're achieving. It's not always about the outcome, folks. Sometimes there's a lot going on that might make us a lot happier than whether we actually win the prize or not. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your coach, your guide on the side. Jimmy's doing a little dance today across the table here. Yeah. <laughs> the music you like, you always like the third hour for I some reason. It lights you music. up. Yep. Gets you so darned excited. Hey, uh, big news. Uh, David Letterman signed off last night. The final sign off. You want to hear some of his top ten? Yes. Maybe we'll have that later. Sweet. What do you do when you sign off? Uh, we were just talking about it uh, out in the hall. You go to Montana. You could. Is that what he's going to do? Is he going to go? There's a cut in that folder if you're Be a race James. car driver. It's, it's the shorter one. It's the great sign off. 
I don't know what I would do. So today is the uh, day without shoes. Well, of course. I got my foot tape. There's a company called Tom's. Yeah. They make shoes. With every shoe you purchase every day of the year, they'll donate shoes. That's nice. Well, today is a day to specifically go without shoes and then make a purchase. Interesting. Could you just make a purchase and not go without shoes? Well, you can do whatever you want, but this is what they- It's the day to remind us. It's one day as a sign of awareness for others around the world who are struggling. Need shoes. And a sign of that struggling is they don't have shoes. It's cool. So you can donate shoes anywhere. Yeah. But they're, uh, they, they have this as part of the, the, a perk of purchasing their product. If you don't want to purchase their product, they, they encourage you to donate a pair of shoes. It's a simple thing, but once you have a pair of shoes on your feet, that, that eliminates a, a problem in people's lives. It's a great, uh, it's there's a great an idea. There's a great day. It's also Red Nose Day. Oh, boy. There's a campaign going on. Uh, just started this year, from what I've seen in the United States, where wear a red nose and and you donate money to a children's charity. To ch- it's to- something that's been going on in the UK for quite a while. They hold it every couple of years. This last time they raised well over a billion pounds. Wow. It's a lot of noses. To be able to help children internationally with uh, education oh, cool. and health and different initiatives that way. So. so today's a very charitable day. It's a charitable day. Shoes and noses. Speaking and of children. charity. Yes. Ray Rice. Oh, he's back in the news? Someone was charitable to him and d- dismissed the domestic violence charges against him. To- Are you serious? Yeah. There was video. Yes. Wow. He punched out his fiance in a uh, casino elevator and, and dragged this, her out of the elevator. And then the elevator kept closing on and her. And it kept closing on her, but he got those charges dismissed. Well, how'd that happen? Um, ABC News reports after he completed a pretrial intervention program. Hmm. Under the terms of the program, Rice had to complete a certain set of requirements to avoid prosecution. ESPN's Outside the Lines reports that such an outcome in a case like Ray Rice, former running back for the Baltimore Ravens, is very rare. In fact, only about 1% of domestic violence cases involving assault were granted such an option. Usually, it's reserved for victimless crimes. So he ha- he was the 1%. He was the 1%. And he huh. is the 1%. And so, yeah, I mean, you have two videos yeah. that show what he did. Well, he lost his career. He It created a huge issue. Well, he, the... he lost the team he was on. Oh, is he still playing? He will. Well, now someone that he's been someone will pick him up, right? and, and a team will pick him back up for the NFL, be, so he can be their yeah. running back. And he will, they'll, they'll frame it as they're doing their part to try to reform him. Yeah, slash get a quality running back so they can win football hmm. games. Well, that's interesting. May uh, you know you don't know if that's positive or negative. Is this good for the cause or I don't know. Bad for the cause. Hmm. I, I just read that and went what? Well, plus his his fiance, the, now his wife. She was a, a girlfriend, I think, at the time. She yes. she was against it the entire time. She was saying, don't make this into anything. Well, which is common, common amongst domestic violence. Uh, Hillary Clinton? Yes. Looking for a job like so many millions of people, she has joined LinkedIn. <laughs> she is already making connections with her first post, Four Ways to Jumpstart a Small Business. Wow. Her official LinkedIn job title, 2016 Presidential Candidate. She boasts a variety of past experiences and on her profile, including two stints as the First Lady of Arkansas, two terms as the First Lady of the United States. She's also uh, visit, lists five publications, perhaps most notably the 1998 offering Dear Socks, Dear Buddy. Hmm. Imagine some sort of children's book. In addition to the, uh, the following... Buddy was their dog. I've met him. 
In addition to following the dog person, hair icon, and pantsuit aficionado, as it lists in her bio, on LinkedIn, Clinton notes that like all good job seekers, she also has a strong social media presence on both Twitter and Facebook. It's it's fantastic. I could Can't you just see her every morning getting on LinkedIn and just writing her next post about right. a pantsuit? I have a hard time with believing that that's... Me too. Uh, bacon is 25% cheaper now. Woo-hoo! Thought this was some big news. Yes! One pound package of bacon, 25% cheaper now than it was a year ago, according to the U.S. Agricultural Department. That's over a dollar and a quarter in savings and puts bacon back on par with breakfast sausage prices. Yeah! Timing, Competition's on! Timing couldn't be better. America's bacon craze hasn't stopped. In the past year, Americans ate 1.1 billion servings of bacon at restaurants. Wow. Oh, the kids like that. Eateries are happy to indulge people's bacon cravings, especially now the prices are following. At casual dining restaurants, bacon sales are up 13% on the year. Excellent. Man, I knew there'd be a comeback. It's big news. It's huge news. Also, a man caught with more than 1,000 stolen eggs in his fridge <laughs> has claimed that he stole them from the factory uh, where he worked it for, a, uh, for his own personal consumption. He was a nighttime security guard. Yeah. Uh, the he just com- sneak an egg out every night. The company was like, "Oh, he has no family. He just enjoys this type of type of work. Just you know, he's great." And instead, he just wanted everyone out of the way so he could steal eggs along with <laughs> a bunch of other products. He says um, he had scribbled dates on each of the eggs and pen to remind him when to eat his next well, egg. That's smart. The forty-seven-year-old security guard, whose name surname was Gu, I, I imagine G U. Yeah. Goo, short for egg in Chinese. Was uh, spotted by police smuggling two suitcases of stolen goods out of the factory where he worked. He had the eggs. He said basically everything in his, in his house was stolen. <laughs> they, uh, he's, uh, I don't know. Well. So tons of products, all kinds of things in his house, and 1,000 eggs in his fridge. Well, the guy likes eggs. Apparently, it's the great edible It's egg. the incredible edible egg. There you go. So, I mean, you can't get on a guy that just wants no. an egg. Can a guy not take one egg from Every an single egg day? <laughs> he probably had to have taken like 10. Yeah, 10 That's at the time. amazing. It's crazy. Here we have the uh, shortened version of David Letterman's. Okay. Final top 10. He had celebrities come out and tell them what they will miss or not have an opportunity to tell Dave. Or yeah. Want this. Here we go. Top 10 things I've always wanted to say to Dave. Steve Martin. Your extensive plastic surgery was a necessity. And a mistake. (laughs) Chris Rock. I'm just glad your show is being given to another white guy. (laughs) Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Thanks for letting me take part in another hugely disappointing series finale. (laughs) Tina Fey. Thanks for finally proving men can be funny. (laughs) There you go. That's great. That's huge. He's gone. He's dead. But what do you do? Bring in Stephen Colbert. Yeah, but then what? I don't know, because it won't be the same as it was before with Stephen Colbert. So. See, I couldn't retire. I can't retire. I would love to take a nap. I'd love to sleep in, but I can't retire. What would you do? Go do something else. Like what? Mow your lawn? Maybe. Ugh. Someone will call him. Yeah. He'll, no. he'll, he'll get a job. He'll be okay. I know, but. He's got a kid. I wonder if he got a watch. What did CBS give him? Like his retirement watch? Yeah. 
Hey, thanks for the last 33 years. Thanks for the last 33 years. Sorry we pushed you out because we want Stephen Colbert on there so he can make more YouTube-friendly content. But here's a watch. (laughs) Here's a watch. (laughs) And enjoy it. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. Well, congrats to him. Lucky, lucky. Hey, uh, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about, you know, what makes us really happy. Is it the pursuit of happiness or is it actually when you are there and you've got it? What creates a happy person? And especially, by the way, with some of these millennials, 20-year-olds, and uh, they're going through a lot of stuff because the world's got a ton of pressure. And so Ran Zilka will be joining us. He's got some great insight and research on this. Dr. Ran Zilka, up next right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you open up YouTube or virtually any website today, you will be bombarded with viral videos of prodigies, maybe a 20-year-old genius here and there, young millionaires, pop stars, public icons, all of them barely old enough to even uh, be out of college. The world continues to get intensely competitive, but is it helping young people thrive or is it driving them into the ground? Rand Zilka is a researcher and a scientist. He's, a, he's an entrepreneur and an author, and he says it's hard to be a young adult today. Young people are becoming socially isolated, even alienated, and he's here on the phone with us to, uh, to help us understand this, this problem a little bit better. He wrote an article called Putting Happiness Back into Young and Happy. Rand Zilka, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, Matt. How are you, my friend? Thanks for having me. Thank you, and uh, and congrats on your new book as well, Ride of Your Life. Uh, you're you're a busy man, aren't you? Yes, yes, I am. Well, walk us through this article you wrote. I, I really enjoyed it. It's on Psychology Today, putting happiness back in the young and the happy. What do you? Why do you suppose the young adults aren't as happy as maybe they should be? It seems like a great time of life. Absolutely true. So this is something that I actually stumbled upon uh, a few years back and started noticing it more and more and then uh, studying it more and more. Uh, Initially, when I was um, running a company in New York, a technology company, and uh, we were at the time releasing uh, different applications with people like Deepak Chopra, uh, Stephen Covey, um, and I became more kind of acquainted with this world as an entrepreneur. I was expecting the audience consuming these products to be around my age. So people in there, uh, at the time I was in my late 30s, yeah. you know, early 40s perhaps. Um, and, um, you know, the assumption I think in this business was always that a lot revolves around life transitions and that the first life transition is typically around that age. It's, you know, the famous or infamous midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I was surprised to find out and was we were releasing these applications to the Apple App Store and selling them, and I became more uh, involved in this world and um, you know, giving talks. I would see more and more uh, young people, and a larger number of young people than I expected, a, uh, you know, showing up to some of the events, 
a larger uh, number than I expected of young people using these applications. And um, at first I didn't make much of it, but uh, it was very clear that this is a consistent phenomenon. So I started wondering about it and started to analyze it more and study it more. And uh, just even looking at the existing literature, and uh, what I discovered is that there's actually um, a very well-established at this point uh, segment uh, of uh, people that is uh, referred to as the quarter-life crisis. Hmm. And this, this absolutely did not exist perhaps 10 or 15 years ago. So it's called the quarter life. It's not like the midlife. It's a quarter of the way into life. So these are the young adults. They're, they're hitting a wall. Exactly. And it's typically uh, young people right out of college. Um, you know, one of the uh, aspects that really affected it is uh, people move more for work. So, you know, these young people, they graduate from college. They... Uh, they want to find the best job, so they may move to a different state. They may move to a place where uh, they don't have any family, any friends, and um, it's harder to establish today social mm. relationships because a lot is going on online, yeah. but not as much offline. So they're finding themselves in the situation where they have a job that they may consider to be a dream job, and, you know, maybe they live in New York City or in San Francisco. It's like, oh, their the dream came true. It's going to be like, you know, the TV series Friends. Yeah. I guess more recently, How I, How I Met Your Mother. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and they get kind of reality slaps them on the face. And they, have, they, they realize that it's not uh, what they had anticipated. Yeah, they're in the they're, the search for happiness. And, and uh, they're, fi- they're hitting their money. They're getting their... You know, their social status is growing, and yet it's still, happiness is still elusive. Exactly. And I think it's for two reasons. You know, the two, the two uh, scientifically established uh, reasons of what could, one could identify for this is, the first one is, uh, you know, these, we left a legacy, sort of speak, younger people, that is very focused on achievement. So it's kind of, for them, it's more about uh, the destination rather than the journey. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they, uh, often many of these young people, they go through college fantasizing about their graduation rather than being immersed in their studies and trying to get as much as they can from that time and, you know, finding it meaningful and so on. So I think that's the first factor is they're very focused on the end results rather than having a meaningful pursuit of goals. And research tells us very clearly that if you're in the course or in the duration of the pursuit of goals that you find meaningful to you, then even if you don't accomplish them or not accomplish them the way you, you had imagined, you're happy. Yeah, happiness, so that is one, it's tied yeah. more to the, to, the, to the race than it is to the finish line. Exactly. Huh. I think that's one aspect. And the other aspect is realizing that uh, while many of these younger people think that uh, happiness is the result of success, research tells us that it's typically the other way around. If success is the result of happiness, someone who's uh, in the course of a meaningful pursuit of goals is 
doing things that have uh, you know have purpose, uh, doing uh, engaged in the things that are meaningful, has a rich life, has a diverse life. You know, yeah. social interactions with other psychological uh, needs met, that type of person then becomes more proactive very naturally, and um, and self-actuates you know more and becomes successful. Yeah. So I think it's these two fundamental mistakes that drive them, uh, you know, many, many, uh, a growing number of younger people to this situation where they're facing this unexpected quarter-life crisis. We're talking with Rand Zilka, um, author of the book Ride of Your Life, and uh, really it's, an, it's a fascinating question here because, Rand, why, do our, why, why is the achievement of it so driven into the heads of our youth? Is it, is, I guess it's us as parents, or is it, I mean, I used to look at adults and say, I want what they have, and I kind of want it now, but what, what, what do you think is pushing our youth to, to be so achievement-driven? Well, I mean, it's, it's the parents, it's the entire environment. Uh, you know, in certain communities, it's, uh, you know, if you live in New York City, for example, then uh, getting your son or daughter into the right private kindergarten or even a private preschool is a very stressful thing. <laughs> yeah. So, you, you know, you can imagine that these kids are three or four and they're already in some sort of rat race. Um, and um, so I, I think it's, you know, I think it's the parents, but the parents are also affected by everything that is going on around them, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, There's a lot of pressure for everybody to, to, you know, get into the schools, get the right degrees, get the right skills. I guess it's our best desire. We just want them to have the best opportunity. And yet, simultaneously, we may be creating a paradigm that's that's backwards in, in happiness. Exactly. And it's a tough thing to do, by the way. If you have, as an individual, if you have capabilities... Um, you know, it's, so for example, it would be a very tough call for a, an 18-year-old kid uh, who can get into Yale or MIT uh, to decide that they want to, you know, dance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because that's meaningful to them. So I think it's, it's a tough call. And one of the things that also happened is that um, this younger generation is much more developed and evolved than we used to be. They're smarter. Many of them are smarter. Many of them have broader skills. You right. know, they, uh, because of all of that education and investment, and at a very young age, they're facing choices that older generations simply did not have. So they have to make these tougher calls, tough calls of, uh, you know, kind of trading happiness for success in a way. And I think that's you know, that's a big part of it. It's huge. Again, we're talking with Rand Zilka, the author of the book uh, Ride of Your Life, A Coast-to-Coast Guide to Finding Inner Peace. We're going to take a break with you, Rand, and come back. I'd love to find out what we could be doing now. Uh, how do we go about finding this happiness and maybe blowing up some of those illusions about the need to um, have the achievement now? And, and how do we actually just start to enjoy the ride instead of just the finish line? Interesting stuff for our young adults and for ourselves, really. Whether it's a quarter-life crisis or your midlife crisis, 
We'll be back talking about some solutions to find happiness right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, my friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. We're talking about the pursuit of happiness and success, and there is an order to these things, apparently. Uh, Ran Zilka is joining us. Ran is the author of the book, Ride of Your Life, A Coast-to-Coast Guide to Finding Inner Peace. He also is um, a a blogger on psychologytoday.com, which is how we found him. He wrote an article, Putting Happiness Back in the Young and Happy. Ran, welcome back to the show. Hi, Matt. Good to have you again. Um, I really wanted to ask you, because what you've been teaching us is the, the real power in our youth is they were motivated, they were driven, they had this goal to go get successful. A lot of times you move away from home, you get out there, you kill the dragon, you start making a, a very successful life, and then they find out that they're not as happy and and what you what you talk about in your article is there's kind of an order to this like the pursuit matters more than the actual result happiness comes more from the actual pursuing than the accomplishment and then happy people the more you feel these positive emotions actually that's what drives eventual success that is right that is exactly right how so, do you how so do we do it I was just going to say, how do we so, do it? Yeah, yeah. So this is like the billion, you know, the multi-billion dollar question. Yeah. Right? And, uh, you know, becoming increasingly difficult in, in the various realities we live in today. I think that a big part of it um, has to do with, um, you know, this notion of going on the road, of, of introducing change. Um, in uh, in uh, coaching psychology and other... Uh, disciplines as well, there's this notion of if you feel stuck, if you feel like you're in a situation that is not good for you, and it's hard to determine which direction is the right direction to go, then the best thing to do is kind of pick almost a random direction and just get out of there. (laughs) And do something different. uh, Just do something different, because as soon as you find yourself on a different vantage point or, you know, then you see you adopt a different perspective. So it's very hard to see from the kind of your initial location. Um, this is really the um, the basis of uh, what I've done myself. Even though for a, a you know not a quarter life crisis, but a, a midlife crisis um, with right of your life, where I got a motorcycle license and I uh, you know decided to take off for a month. Hmm. and simply experience a reality that is very, very different than the one I experienced back then every day. Um, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of literature about this. There's the famous uh, um, uh, Joseph Campbell book, you know, about being a hero and going out on a heroic journey and going back. Um, I think the first step is to understand or to identify that things are not, uh, you know, they're not aligned the way you really expected them to be. Yeah. No, notice that and, you're out of, uh, yeah, you're kind of out of rhythm. You're in dissonance. 
Exactly. And, and then I think that the, the first thing to do is just, you know, for as a peak experience, as, a, as an, uh, you know, out of the ordinary experience, go out and do something different. It could be for a limited time. You know, you can take a short vacation from work. You can, uh, you know, to go on a road trip uh, or maybe do something else. But, um, you know, the, the biggest enemy of being able to identify what's wrong and what could be improved is your daily routine. Mm-hmm. Because then you're basically on autopilot the whole time. Yeah. So, you know, I think this is the, the biggest... Uh, advice I could give is just to, um, you know, within, within the limits of, uh, obviously you don't want to hurt anyone close to you and you want to be thoughtful and you want to do something that's reversible. Um, but within those constraints to take a step, even if it's not in a very clear direction and just go someplace else, whether it's physically, mentally, just depart and deviate from that daily routine to get a better perspective. Yeah. I love that. And and you could you could even um you know if you don't want to lose your job or I mean take a weekend and go you could even go think where where were you happier? Where where did you have this drive and this joie de vivre and this desire for life and and go back and try to learn where you used to have it and maybe where you've lost it. Exactly. That's exactly right. Like you're saying, it's just—it's almost just a shift in location and vision may change everything there. Yes, yes. And, you know, I think the biggest transformations are actually subtle. Uh, you know, I always tell people, uh, you know, I spent five weeks on the road. I, you know, I was by myself on a motorcycle. I rode from New York to California. I met with all these people, right, with uh, Deepak Chopra and Byron Katie and many psychologists. It was a real concentrated peak experience. But, uh, and I've made a lot of changes in my personal life, but when I got back, I basically, you know, I still live in the suburbs. Hmm. Uh, you know, I still have, you know, I, I love my wife. We have uh, a very warm family. I have school-age kids. Um, you know, at the level of the shell, I still live what's, quote-unquote, a very boring life, right? <laughs> a very ordinary life. Yeah. Um, but in the depth of it, in the essence of it, many, many things have changed. And I think that's the kind of change that is more difficult to make. Yeah. And again, if you're very young and you haven't experienced this kind of thing, it's new to you to be in the situation where things are not aligned or are kind of out of resonance and uh, uh, you don't know what to do, then, you know, you, you can get away for a little while. Just like you said, you can take a week off, you can take a few days off, you know, you can meditate, you can pray, you can... Uh, you know, talk to people, do whatever it is that helps you adopt a different perspective. You bet. Um, realizing the fact that more than often when you get back, you may get back to a very similar situation, but there are subtle changes changes that can make you know, a huge difference. Yeah, you, you will be different. Your vision will be different. Man, beautiful. Rand Zilka, we appreciate you. Great insight and uh, research about happiness. And good luck on uh, your book, Ride of Your Life, A Coast-to-Coast Guide to Finding Inner Peace. Um, Also, you can find more from Ran on Psychology Today or go to his website, rideofyourlife.com. Great information there as well. We're going to take a break, come back with our great friends down at BYU Sports Nation, see what's going on with them, and uh, 
you know, check in for their upcoming show at the top of the hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to toss it down to Studio uh, B with our good friends down there, Jerem and Spencer from BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. Do you know that Coldplay is my favorite band? Are they're, they're my favorite band. What? we we'll say what? Well, at least we have one thing in common. I know. that. Well, we have two things. Jerem. <laughs> Helping Jerem. <laughs> okay, two I'm things I'm the in project. Common. Helping yeah. our project, Jerem. Hey, yeah, I um, love Coldplay as well. Do you I like Coldplay? In Vegas one year. It, yeah. dude, they're they're a fantastic band. Who's yeah. your second favorite band? Coldplay's not my favorite. I think U2 is my favorite. Really? Second mm-hmm. favorite band. That's a great question because you don't. You're not often asked that. No one goes for two. Who's your fourth favorite band? Who's uh, your mine, favorite Barry Manilow. Really? Mm-mm. Did you go recently? You came to Salt Lake. I did. I actually, it was playing in my podiatrist's office as I was getting my foot taped up. True story. My sister sang backup with Barry Manilow and danced with him on stage in a concert he put on in Salt Lake City. Really? Your like she sister. got invited up? Yeah, oh, she was. Wow. She was asked and paid to be one of his backup singers, and then on stage he went over and danced and sang with her. Is that oh. where you get this? Well, I get what you know. <laughs> Is that, is that where you get that amazing dancing style and ah, and that? Yeah, you know, I don't hold a candle groove. to my sister Lari in both vocals and in How dancing. How cool ability. though! That what a great honor. But you're a candle in the wind. Hey guys, I got some research for you. This is actually fascinating. I'm always afraid of what no, is no, going to happen. This to actually us. this came from the Harvard Business Review. Okay. Um, so this is this is legit. Oh, it must be good. It came this from the a, Onion. It's no, legit. This is such an interesting thing. Okay. So if you're a soccer goalie, okay, and you want to stop the ball, okay, which way? Where should you stand, and where should you? Where are you most likely to to stop the goal? Ooh, diving to the right. Diving to the left. Are you talking about a penalty kick? Uh-huh. Okay. Or standing in the middle? I would say standing in the middle. Uh-huh. What would you say, J-Dog? <laughs> I would, yeah, I would say standing in the middle, and then you have to react to where the ball goes. Goal are key- you saying just straight guess, like no. be a computer and just yeah, play just, the numbers? Yeah. Like where the shot ends up the most. Yeah, I would where say, it ends up the most. To, I would say dive to your right. Diving to the right? To the left. People who guess, people who I... dive to the right stop the ball twelve point six percent of the time. Those who dive to the left stop the ball fourteen point two percent of the time. Okay, interesting. But the goalies who don't move and stay in the middle stop the ball thirty three percent of the time. Scott Sterling, I'm You're telling Scott you, Scott Sterling, the ball is, real thing. When he, the ball is stopped, uh huh. Because you just accounted for like sixty percent. Now watch the ball's them. only stopped like twenty percent. Well, then there's yeah, exactly, exactly. Now watch, watch, watch. Guess what percentage of the time though people actually stay in the middle? Ooh, like hardly. I, ever. I would guess hardly ever. Yeah, six percent of the time. Interesting, isn't that? Yeah. Weird? So just hang out. But it looks like you're not doing anything. That's if you just hang the out. point. That's what we were talking about. Is because we're always so busy moving that we're going to move even if it's not effective. We'd rather jump to the right than look stupid standing there and not yes. moving. That's that's funny. looking stupid stinks. That's, that's always funny does. <laughs> because there are goalkeepers at the highest level that just kind of like move back and forth and then they'll kind of stay in the middle. Yeah. 
So it's like, well, what are you doing, man? Like, you right. shot the ball to the right corner, the now, left corner. It, you know who's the best at this? Who? Nick Romando. From the new uh, USA, yeah, US yeah. keeper who plays for Real Salt Lake. Right. For those local in Utah. Yeah, he's amazing. He, he has stopped. He stopped his 25th penalty kick in his career on Saturday. Unbelievable. 25. How many has he faced? You know? One million. Just kidding. 20, <laughs> 25. He stopped everyone. That's I'm, just, I'm just kidding. But, that, but see, the rule is if everybody now stands in the middle, so we don't want this out because if everybody gets this out, then <laughs> it'll change all the numbers. Hey, real story with men's soccer. We, we used to do it on BYTV, and the head coach, Chris Watkins, said, it does make me a little no- – there are disadvantages to being on television sometimes because opponents yes. would see BYU take penalty kicks – they were in a shootout, and then they knew their tendency because a player typically shoots in the same spot every time. Ah, they just practice that one yes, play. that corner. Mm. They master that one. So he said, shoot, the, the next team we play, if we have a penalty kick situation, they'll know. <laughs> and then I said, but you had like thousands of people watching you. Yeah, it was worth it. Yeah. See, that's why it's better to, be, to not be in the big leagues, not be in the big conferences. <laughs> I'll go. What is false? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was just. That's a disagreement to... from J Dog. Oh. J Dog. <laughs> hey, by the way, just really quick, J. Speaking of J Dog, uh, bacon prices are twenty five percent cheaper now. I just wanted you guys to know. That's that. a big deal. It's I would rather deal. have cheaper bacon than cheaper gas. I think we I would may too. have to get that in the show somewhere. You can't drink your gas. Twenty five percent cheaper heaven. than a year ago. So just know it's and bacon sales are up. So, Who said the economy is down? Come on. I know. The bacon economy. The bacon economy is doing great. That drives everything in America. Hey, what's on your show today, boys? I don't even Who remember. Cares after that We're talking about bacon. bacon like yeah, I can't think cheaper. of anything else. I'd invest Drive in bacon right bacon. now. <laughs> it's so bad that I want to wake up to the smell of delicious bacon in the morning. My wife no. hates the smell of bacon, so that's kind of a thing in our household. Oh. It's like, man, I can't have bacon. That's kind of sad. Should I cook it outside or something? So you know you could just wake up and like make oatmeal. Yeah, just don't put it on a George Foreman grill and turn it on and then go back mm. to sleep and wake up and burn your foot. Did that happen? A la Michael Scott. Oh, Michael Scott, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever we can have a Michael Scott reference on the show, yes. it's always good. Okay, now we can talk about what's happening on our show. Yes. I remember. Uh, the rivalry game for BYU football now and in the immediate future. Hmm. You know, it, everyone in the immediate area says, oh, it's Utah. Not well, there, anymore. Are, there are no guarantees with Utah after two years. Right. Well, uh, next season, BYU plays Utah. What's the emerging rivalry? What I'm saying after 2016 and 2017. like And 18. With yeah. Three. So who mm. knows? We'll play it. Well, yeah. Well, so who is it? It's boy. Well, our, our specific what discussion is relative to uh, Bleacher Report. Came out and said the sixth uh, biggest emerging rivalry in college football is BYU-Boise State. So we ah. thought, who's the bigger rival right now? Emerging rivalry. Boise State, Utah State, because Utah State. Yeah, Utah. Well, I think Utah State's already a rivalry. Well, Boise State is emerging. It wasn't, but it's become that because they've started winning recently against BYU. I don't think it was a rivalry mm. prior to that. Don't tell you them. You can't that. have a rival when you never beat them, like a two-way rivalry. <laughs> yeah. Utah, BYU's they've always been, been the rival. State, to Utah well, they've State. played for a very long time. The, the the part that's interesting is Boise State now with you know this twelve-year agreement that they're in the middle of. They are becoming this nice little regional, competitive, high-level opponent for BYU. It's year an emerging in and year rivalry. Out. Yeah, I'm telling you guys. So how does it compare to Utah? I think it's the New England Patriots. Oh goodness, here we go again. Deflate Gate. Are you even <laughs> listening to a word we're saying? Uh, actually, I took a little nap right in the middle of all of that. <laughs> but it was fascinating. No, I, I I agree. But now I'm sitting here thinking I can't even name five more teams that will play more than two years. Is it? 
Boise State or Utah State, Matt? It's, Bigger rivalry. Right, it's Boise for sure. Boise State. Why? Because their field is blue, for crying out loud. Okay. That, <laughs> I mean, we might we, get that our response colors today. are blue. And We've had some funny responses. They're, they're trying to steal our color. Utah State, they have to win more if they want to keep that rivalry going. Well, they're, they're, they're doing a pretty winning good job. recently. They ruined I know. I've the been season here. last year, and so I know. they are. That's that, that, our that, agony brings them great joy. Exactly. Nothing wrong with that. Which fuels a great rivalry? Well, that's by the way a great topic on your show. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. Sounds like a good one. Okay, um, here's the deal. I'm going to let you go, but uh, if you come up to the break room and smell some bacon, grab yourself a piece. Are you buying? It's cheaper. It's not just mine, but them, just just grab it and see what those guys think. Oh, uh, yeah, Aiken. Or some bacon. Bacon, <laughs> this, bacon, bacon. This ad brought to you by Bacon Growers of America. What are the Bacon Farmers of America? Yes. You guys are the best. Thanks, Matt. Have a great show. That's cool. That's a great question about rivalries. You have a you have an answer on that, Jimmy Crack Corn? Boise State. I agree. Because they, they're the winners. Now, basketball, Gonzaga. Yeah. That's what I'm going with. But they weren't talking basketball. Hey, um, we, we always like to end with a hero story, right? Man, have we got one for you. Holy cow. Check this out. A five-year-old boy with a heart of gold. This is just tells you why we need to pay more attention to our kids. Five-year-old boy from Alabama um, has set his eyes on a homeless man for the very first time. And you won't believe what he did. So walking into a restaurant, Josiah was confused by the appearance of one man sitting at a booth. He kept probing his mother with questions until she finally explained that the man was homeless. This idea disturbed Josiah, and he insisted to his mom that they buy him dinner. His mother agreed and allowed her son to deliver the food to the man. Before the man could take his first bite, Josiah insisted that they say a prayer first. She, she had, he had a prayer with the homeless man. So Josiah bowed his head and publicly prayed for the man's food, as much uh, with as much volume as he could muster, the man started to cry. I cried. Everyone cried. She said. The mom said in an interview to WFSA News. Um, she says, "You never know who the angel on earth is, and when the opportunity comes, you should never walk away from it." She added, "This young boy's bravery and concern to others is a reminder to all of us that the simple things we do for others." can be the most powerful, and who better to teach us that, by the way, than the beautiful uh, children that we have? Pay attention to your kids, folks. A lot of times your kids will uh, will help you um, really create some, some true amazing miracles in our lives. Uh, I've seen it even with my own kids. I have two or three, actually, children now that have gone through in high school and have been aides to uh, other children who have special needs. And it that very issue, that very service uh, opportunity that they had has changed our entire family because now um, we get phone calls from these kids. We My kids share their text messages from their new friends with special needs, and it's opened up our minds, our eyes, and uh, and just really we're, we're, we're much more accepting as a family because of that. So, Josiah, you're the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show, and Mom, thank you for uh, paying attention and and uh, bringing this to light. That's the show, my friends. We Remember, we can't do the show without you, and our goal is to give you the positive in the world, not just the negative and the news, but we want you to walk away with actual tools, real insight. Today, I think we've made it happen, a little discussion about uh, uh, Russia. We've also got in deep into uh, the don't just be busy, 
be productive, right? Try to get some results. And remember that happiness doesn't always come from the outcome. You got to love the journey as you're on the way. That's the show, my friends. We'll be back tomorrow. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Till tomorrow, take care.